Support for Boston Public Radio comes from New England Recovery Center, providing inpatient addiction treatment in state-of-the-art facilities located in Westboro, Mass. All major insurance plans accepted. Learn more at newenglandrecoverycenter.org. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, many states are bracing for a surge of coronavirus patients in the next week. Meanwhile, hospitals have been scrambling to find enough personal protective equipment, ventilators, ICU beds. As part of the $2 trillion congressional package, feds are sending $100 billion to hospitals, but is it enough? Plus, how telehealth is the key to getting through this mess? We'll discuss it all with MIT economist John Gerber. President Trump again takes a page from Nixon's handbook. Even in the midst of a pandemic, the president has been working hard in his enemies list. First, Intelligence Inspector General Michael Atkinson fired for alerting Congress to the whistleblower complaint that kicked off his impeachment. Next, the Inspector General charged with monitoring cheating involving Congress' $2 trillion stimulus money. Can any Inspector General survive? We'll ask our national security expert, Juliet Kime, coming up about this and more. 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Good morning, Jim. Hey there, Marjorie. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. You know, we're going to start today, before we get to the topic we intend to discuss with you all, is there's actually some good news. And I I was thinking, as I'm about to say this, the good news, there's a new definition for good news. It's, It's really quite morbid. It generally means fewer deaths. Or at least, well, let me give you a couple of examples where I think is good news. Dr. Fauci this morning was on Fox News. And while he starts by saying, quote, these are all quotes, it's going to be a bad week for deaths, he goes on to say after this week, the U.S. should see, quote, the beginning of a turnaround. Now, that is a small thing, but hopeful. That's one. Two, that model that we've been talking about that obviously persuaded Donald Trump about a week ago to get relatively serious about this, that it projected anywhere from, what, 90-some thousand deaths to 200 or something like that, that number is down. And, And to bring it back home... Uh, the number just yesterday that was projected by this model out of the University of Washington, deaths on the peak day for deaths in Massachusetts. And I, I, this is so hard to say because it makes it sound like, oh, there are only so many deaths. So that's good news. Well, compared to what was projected yesterday, they were projecting 373 deaths on the peak day, which was April 18th. And today they're projecting roughly half that amount, 213 which is good news. And I think, I'm going to ask Art Kaplan about this when he joins us in the 12 o'clock hour. I think this is good news out of New York City, as perverse as it is. While Governor Cuomo yesterday announced the highest death total, I think yesterday of any day, the number of admissions to ICU units is down dramatically, almost by two-thirds yesterday. And I think that is a, a really important criterion when determining the ebb and flow of the virus. So, again, it is a perverse definition of good news, but I think there are some well, signs of hope today. There's a couple of things I think are, 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 are hopeful, that apparently the social distancing could be working in a, in a, yep, in a exactly. good way. And the other thing, you know, we've been seeing for days these pictures of these physicians on television and the, and, and nurses on television, healthcare And other workers, medical, right, all and, of them. And really describing these horrific, like, warlike conditions in these hospitals. But, you know, it reminds me a little bit of the marathon bombing when every single solitary person in Boston who was alive after the bombing 
made it to the hospital mm-hmm. and survived, even though many of them were badly injured and lost leg or legs and stuff like that. You know, our healthcare system overall is a mess, as we know, millions of people are uninsured, but we have great hospitals and great physicians. So I like to think that in the hospitals in New York and in the hospitals in Boston, that the dedication and the quality of the medical care made a big, huge difference in people's ability to recover. Well, speaking of that, that's a perfect segue to the topic at hand. You know, if doctors and nurses and, as you said, other healthcare workers are struggling to get the kind of pr- a protective gear that's normally accessible to them when there's not a pandemic, what does it mean for the safety of other essential employees who are working in other industries? Unfortunately, in the last couple of days, we found out grocery store workers across the country are now dying from COVID-19. And you probably know that includes a market basket employee in Salem, who's believed to be the first grocery store worker in our state to die. Yesterday, uh, workers from a number of local grocery stores protested their working conditions, demanding they get the bare essentials for being essential during this outbreak. They're asking for, boy, talk about demands, gloves, masks, additional paid sick leave, and time and a half hazard pay. And so while employers have been slow to give workers the protections that they need in these settings, grocery stores, delivery people, aren't we as consumers complicit too? So we're going to take your calls on that, asking you, do you feel guilty about putting other people's lives at risk when you go to the grocery store or you order a delivery thing? And, or have you gotten smarter about shopping and ordering delivery and all that sort of thing? 877-301-897. I spoke to a woman last night, Lisa Wilson, who's in her young 20s, who just started working. She was laid off from AMC Theaters or whatever they're called. And she just started working a week and a half ago at the uh, Shaw's in Hyde Park. Uh, I said, do they give you gloves and a mask? She said, no. And I said, well, how do you get them? And she says, well, if we can find them. We pay for them ourselves. And you know what I read in the Globe story? She was also quoted in the Globe story. I think it was this morning or yesterday because she was part of this little protest. Do you know what Shaw does Shaw's does to help them with the purchase of, uh, I think it's master gloves? They give them a 5% yeah, discount if they that. have them. The they Globe only have story. to pay 95% of retail costs. Yeah. She said, I said, are you scared when you go to work? And she said, and she was very calm. She said, I'm actually terrified. When I go to work. And the reason she was hired, she tells me, as somebody who, again, was working at the theaters and now switched over, is because so many of the regular uh, workers at the supermarket were too scared to go to work. And as a result, they're getting some fill-ins. And when she was hired, she was not even told that uh, uh, there had been a person who tested positive for coronavirus in the same store. And this is not an atypical story. And I think it's true. We are complicit in this and I'm trying to change my behavior. I am, you know, I told you the other day I drive by supermarket uh, parking lots and when there are not a lot of people, I go in. I don't do that as much anymore in the last few days, not to protect me, even though that's usually number one with me, <laughs> but because you put all of these incredible workers who are making virtually nothing well, at greater risk. How many days have we been saying that you know, we're all supposed to be social distancing and you go to the grocery store and you're 18 inches away from the cashier? Even By the way, with the plexiglass. We should point out that Shaw's and Star Market claim they are in the process of obtaining masks for workers. That's according to a spokesman. Uh, so we'll see if that... It's been a month, Marjorie. This is the fourth week since the shutdown here in our state when uh, only essential workers, including grocery store workers, I would argue that in four weeks they should be able to have something provided for their frontline workers. Would you not suggest? Uh, I, I would say. I would say in general the United States of America is lagging behind. 
other countries. Can I make one, all sorts of one last introductory uh, uh, comment? And then we're going to take your calls at 877-301-8970. Are you feeling guilty about this? And by the way, if you work in a grocery store, we'd love, or if you did, we'd love to talk to you. You know, the Baker administration announced yesterday that they're imposing this thing where you can only have 40% of the permitted capacity at a grocery store. And that 40% doesn't only include customers. It includes employees, too. And while 40% is a lot less than 100%, Think of the most crowded supermarket you go to and the most crowded one I go to. I used to go Saturday mornings to the Market Basket in Somerville. 40% of a mob is still a mob. It is far, far, far too many. And uh, uh, so, well, I think it's a really good start on the uh, part of the Baker administration. It'll work fine at some supermarkets. It's not enough to protect those people and to protect the customers at 40%. Well, this is anecdotal, of course, but at the Trader Joe's uh, that's near me and the Whole Foods is like two doors from my house. Uh, you're waiting out in the parking lot six feet apart. Well, that's in, great. When you get into the store, there's almost nobody in there. I think one of the persons said to me that they're not letting any more than 30 people in the store total, uh, including shoppers and employees. So that's not you're, – you're kind of all by yourself. I understand that, but I'm saying to you that 40% of the typical crowd at the most crowded supermarket, which I used to go to – uh, is is not few enough. I mean, obviously, it's anecdotal, too, but I think it's got to be more extreme, again, to protect these people well, who are like making to nothing to begin with. Market Basket is, is – we have that terrible death of the Market Basket worker in Salem, and there are stories about grocery workers beginning to die. You would think they would take it upon themselves, and let's hope they do. We've talked a lot about Market Basket a couple of years ago, and they had that terrible uh, family fight between the DeMoulis brothers about who's going to own the thing. And the workers stood by the side yes. of one of the so brothers I at great personal risk. I have faith in them that they will do the right thing here and not – have a mob scene at the, at the, gro- the grocery You thought the store. generals were going to do the right thing, too, in the Trump administration. Remember that? Eddie in Fall River. You know, I had no idea Eddie, how bad it could get Eddie Jim. in Fall River, you're first on Boston Public Radio. Thank you much for calling in. Hi. Jim and Marjorie, first of all, my pleasure. I love you guys. Thanks. I love everything about your show. Thanks. I can't thank you all enough. But oh, I so get nice. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Jim and Mar- Marjorie. We, we really love you and Thanks. so much. And, and we want to pay thank you, like you say, to all these workers that are allowing us our supplies for survival. So I just want to say, like what Jim said and Marjorie, thank you, everybody, that we are so blessed to have. And God bless us all. But I have a quick comment. Mm-hmm. I'd like to not only thank all of, all of everybody from uh, my mom's nursing home, and I want to say happy birthday to my mom. Happy 72. She's in Fall River. In happy birthday. Home, unfortunately. Happy from yes, us, too. Thank you, guys. And I, I, I want to know, Jim and Marjorie, you guys are so intelligent, and know I know that. we're all flawed and all, but yeah. the One 25th <laughs> Amendment, when will it be exercised? When oh, will we never. have Mike Pence yeah. take over? And, I mean, I'm not a Mike Pence fan either, but I, I, I have to say, when will it be enough for the leaders? And I love them all. We are so blessed here in Massachusetts. Charlie Baker, I don't say this often, but I love you. Okay, I don't typically say that about Republicans, but you're doing a fine job and we really appreciate you, sir, and everybody in your staff. But the 25th Amendment, if Washington is listening, please, please consider removing this lunatic, please. Eddie, can I tell you the thing you're talking about for the Eddie, thank you for a fine call and thanks for your kindness. The the 25th Amendment, I think it's Section four uh, is a provision that's never been used. The first section has been used. Obviously, when Reagan was incapacitated, et cetera. But this says when a when a president is unable to uh, fulfill his duties 
And then there's a procedure for this in the Constitution. I don't know if it's a majority of the cabinet or some such thing reports the Congress. There's a whole convoluted thing. And the only person who was outspoken about this talking about let's create a commission that is ready for a time, if there ever is a time, to quote him, uh, to uh, implement this thing was the congressman from Maryland, uh, Jamie uh, – what's Jamie's last name from Maryland? It was on the uh, Judiciary Committee. was um, uh, – I know this guy fairly well. Well, too. anyway, go ahead. Can someone in the control room get me Jamie's last name, congressman from Maryland? But essentially he's been talking about the 25th Amendment. There's oh, very the, little, with the curly hair? Yeah. There's very very little talk about <laughs> I it. I can see him right in front of me, Jamie Jim. Raskin, thank, thank you, you very much. He's terrific. Uh, but there's been very little talk about it for the caller just now. But it is a procedure, again, that's never been used, which would allow for, uh, under the appropriate circumstances, for a president, any president, to be uh, removed. Eight, seven, it's not impeachment. It's uh, inability to carry out their well, function. But, you know, millions and millions of Americans think he's doing a great job. Yep. The, the World Health Organization in China have now become the villains, and it's all their fault now. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it's always Barack Obama's fault. So mm-hmm. those are the new villains. And, and Mr. You forgot and the reporters and all the Democrats in the Congress. <laughs> Other than that, we're on an, <laughs> and, an apolitical and footing. And who, the inspectors who, who, who general, look right? over your shoulder. If you're inspecting anything, man, you're in big trouble you know, now. I, we're going to talk to Juliet. Speak, another guy oh, who bit the dust. corrupt Did disgrace. you hear when he's talking about the former acting Navy secretary who was forced to resign yesterday? What his first comment was? I don't even know the guy. I don't even know the guy. He's his acting uh, secretary of the Navy. Never met him. Don't yeah. know him. Tom in Cambridge. Hi. Hey, uh, first thing I want to say is to pay tribute to you, Jim and Marjorie. You're doing oh a fantastic God. job. Thank uh, you. Your service is so valuable and uh, reassuring, too, in these dark times. And I, I plan my day around your show. You could Thank not you. be nicer. Um, Thanks, Tom. Gee, What's people, up? You know what? People what like it? us a lot more in the pandemic than they did <laughs> before, Tom. I just want to say we've become very popular in these dark times. Yeah, not, 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 tr- not true. You're okay. just hearing it more. Thanks. Okay, thank you. Um, What's up, Tom? Joe, grocery workers and others, I, I, I just feel bad about everything. I don't feel complicit for going out shopping. But my, my issue is that the outrageous behavior of employees firing workers who show up in their own PPE or try, who are whistleblowers and try to draw attention and try and serve the public health. There should be a law against firing any health worker at, at this time. The most obvious example, of course, is firing Captain Crozier, but uh, this whole thing is a problem in our our economic culture, and to use uh, one of Jim's favorite words, it is unconscionable. Thank you. Thank that you. that made my day. Tom, thank you very much. You know, I want to repeat this thing, by the way. This, I want to read this line from the piece by Katie Johnston about uh, uh, employees are allowed. This is the piece about the rally uh, yesterday uh, by the grocery store workers. Employees are allowed to wear gloves and masks. This is at Shaw's where the woman I interviewed last night, Lisa Wilson, works. But the store doesn't provide them. That's bad enough. This is even worse. And workers get a 5% discount on the gloves. It sells. Can you imagine? It's better to say there's no discount, don't you think, than saying I'll give you 5% off. By the way, that's not even their cost. I'm assuming. What are they marked up 100% like other all non-food items? I haven't even tried. I'm just using a scarf. And the the person that was talking in this story, she makes $12.75 an hour. Yeah. And gets one hour of paid sick time for every 30 hours she works. And, and is terrified when she goes she's to work, she says. She's worried if she's going to get through the 30 hours of work to get the one hour of paid sick time. So, by the way, in, in 
and you know, the caller just now said he didn't, I think it was Tom said he didn't feel complicit. I didn't mean to guilt trip people. I meant, for example, as I said, I was going into a supermarket whenever the parking lot wasn't full. That's too much is the answer. Do a little more planning. Even for people like me who love shopping in supermarkets in normal times, figure out a plan so you can go every couple of weeks. Don't rely on Instacart and deliveries every day because it puts those people at risk too. The whole thing, you got to be, we, we, not you, we have to be thinking more about these essential uh, workers. Barry in Boston, hi. Hi, Jim and Marjorie. First of all, I do want to echo what the other callers are saying. You guys are great, and you've been great throughout Thanks. this. Uh, Thank you. The people who are complicit are the people who continue to go into the grocery stores and be in the parks in Boston not wearing face masks. I just came from the Symphony Whole Foods. Those workers are the heroes. They deserve our credit. The people who are going into that grocery store, I don't know why they allow people into the store without a face mask. I'm with that you. doesn't make sense. They won't let you carry your own bag into the store, but they're letting people in without face masks. And you know something, it, Barry, I don't know if they did this at the one near Symphony Hall. That's a tiny Whole Foods, too, by the way. But they it came is. out, I, I got my basket, and I had my little wipe, you know, my Clorox wipe there, and I wiped it down. One of the workers came over and sprayed down my entire carriage. They're doing that at all the Whole Foods. I it think a lot really, of the supermarkets, too. I mean, yeah. it was so impressive. And I got in my little line, six feet. But, but you're right. I would say about half the people in the line did not have face masks on. That's the Whole Foods in Boston. You're supposed to have face masks on, according to Marty Walsh. And you go out That's right. In and public. I so what, can I, Barry, before you continue, why don't they, why, sure. what's wrong with these supermarkets putting up signs and giving people 72 hours notice? I'm with Barry and saying effective, what day is today, Wednesday? Starting on Saturday, so you have notice. Uh, you can't come in the store unless you have a mask, period. I'm with you, Barry. Well, I think part of it is because we just decided a few days ago that we needed to wear face Fine, masks. Fine, so give them a few days' notice. But go ahead, Barry. Yeah. You, know, you know what, Jim? Starting today. Starting I- today. The mayor put this into effect last Friday or something like that. I live in the back bay. I live within walking distance of that Symphony Whole Foods. I would say about 50% of the people walking around my neighborhoods are, in my neighborhood are wearing face masks. Yeah, that means the other 50% are sending the exact same message that Donald Trump and the clown show of the White House is sending to, the, to their neighbors, to their friends. It, it's unconscionable. unconscionable. Barry, I am totally with you, and I'm really glad you called. I am really glad you called, and let's keep pushing Thank up. Thank you, Jim and Marjorie. Want to announce way, some breaking yeah. news here? CNN, go ahead. Yeah, CNN is reporting that Bernie Sanders has suspended his presidential campaign, so we'll be hearing more about uh, that today. By the way, I saw Biden on television last night um, mm-hmm. talking about the coronavirus. Was he with, with Chris Cuomo? Yes. Can I make a comment about that, if I may? And I am echoing something that uh, a regular guest on our show wrote on, wrote on Politico.com. Did you read the piece that Joanna Weiss wrote talking about how, you know, Chris Cuomo, and I'm paraphrasing, obviously, Joanna's a great writer, talking about, you know, he's a great model for people telling people what it's like to have coronavirus. And she said another way you can be a model, take a sick day. Well, He looked so sick to me last night in his interview. He wasn't interviewing Biden when I was watching. He was interviewting some health expert. Yeah. I mean, really, take a damn day well, off know, as a model. He's also he's also ruining the curve. You know, if I come down with this dread disease, I hope I don't have to get up at like seven o'clock every morning and prepare for four hours for the radio show, Jim. I hope I can get a day off. I just, but is it, you know, maybe one or two. But a serious, <laughs> but it's a serious point that it she is a makes. Point. If it turns out you're trying to tell people what having coronavirus is like, aren't you as a model? And he's trying to be a model here. You're basically encouraging people 
to work, to go to work. when they shouldn't. Exactly. Ex- no, I think it would be great if he just was interviewed uh, you know, on a daily basis. Cause, um, when he can, yeah, I agree. When he can. But the people I know, it's interesting, they talk about mild symptoms, and there are people with mild or no mm-hmm. symptoms. But most people I've talked to or read about anecdotally, too, um, you're pretty damn sick. You know, people are talking about high fevers for at least a few days. And the scary part is that you could be going along swimmingly like Boris Johnson and then get to day seven or eight or nine and have a catastrophic downturn. But can I what, one thing before we take a break? Mild is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, Tom Rush, who, you know, is my idol, the folk singer oh, yeah, when I was a kid. Now he's a good friend. He's going to be tonight. He's a good fr- Now he's a friend of the shows and a friend of Marjorie's and mine. Just a wonderful and talented man. He had coronavirus, and we were texting in the beginning saying it was uncomfortable, but it wasn't that big a deal. And when you probe a little bit more, it's clear that it was a big deal. I don't just mean because it's a dangerous thing, but but he, like a lot of people, are I think because they're more courageous maybe than you and me, downplaying some of these symptoms, which are pretty intense, I should say. Even if you don't have to go to the hospital, which I don't believe he did. I think there's a wide variety. I talked to some people who just had like 101 fever and they had a cough. They never got tightness of breath and they just felt achy, like a mild flu. And then I've talked to some people that have been up all night long, like Chris Cuomo was talking about, um, you know, with with shakes and tremors and really high fever. So I think there's a great variety. And then, of course, you have the worst case scenario where you're unable to breathe. And that's what's really scary. By the way, uh, Tom Rush, I didn't finish his story, is coming out of it and is doing actually quite well after uh, a couple of uh, weeks. Of Apparently, so is Rand Paul, who risks he's, infecting all his other buddies. He's, I saw he's, he's volunteering yeah, he's in a volunteering hospital. In a right? hospital yeah. yeah. Anyway, we're talking about grocery store workers and how they are putting their lives on the line, and so are the people at CVS and the liquor store cashiers. Cashiers, I think, are the new first responders. I'm going to keep talking about them on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Brady and Marjorie. And if you're just tuning in, we're talking about grocery store workers across the country who are putting their lives at risk as essential employees. And as Marjorie said, people working in pharmacies, all these people, grocery store, pharmacy, liquor store, uh, if you're one of those essential employees, we'd like to hear from you. And if you're a customer, are you rethinking how often you really need to go into these places or to order a delivery? 877-301-8970. Ken from Rockland. You're next on Boston Public Radio. Hi, Ken. Um, not Rockland. It's Rutland. Rutland is good enough for um, us, Ken. Hi. I'm here. Hi. What's up? Um, essential workers, grocery people, God bless them. But there's one thing that really, really bothered me. What? Went to the deli counter. I wanted shredded mozzarella cheese. They didn't have any on the rack, so I figured I'll shred my own. Went to the deli counter and asked the guy to cut me a big hunk of mozzarella cheese. He cut it for me. I checked out, got to the car and said, holy cow, he didn't have a mask on. Mm. He's breathing on my cheese. And my first thought was, chuck it. And then being of Scottish descent, I said, no. And you're going to think I'm a little crazy here. Took it home, washed it with soap and water. I think it's great. Took a knife, cut one-eighth of an inch off of each side. I love this. Rinsed it off. Okay, I'm crazy. I no, you know, are not. But... Uh, and 
as far as me going in wearing a mask, when I go in, I have gloves, I have a mask, and I have a full balaclava. I may if I I'd be well, like kind of ski- scary walking into a bank like that. Is that like a but, thing you uh, wear skiing covers your whole face? Yep, covers. Yeah. They all they could see was my eyes, and not because I'm afraid of getting anything. I feel great. I mean, I've been elderly for 15 years, but I feel great. Good. That Ken, can I make a anything. suggestion? While you're out, yes. after you get the mozzarella, you can just go rob a bank. I mean, why not? It's a twofer. Well, look at all the stories. How'd you the, like the his black, line of the, the day? He's breathing on he's my breathing cheese. He's breathing on his cheese. That's a great point. Alicia didn't Lysol, and I would be, you know, <laughs> that could be a problem. Soap and water, I suppose, and you cut it off. That's really, that's really I brilliant. Love that. Ken, brilliant. thank you very much for the suggestion. By the look way, what the black you do guys this? are writing what? the stories about how they can't wear face masks. It was in the Globe. It was a yeah. great piece. You, you know, you see, you see four or five black guys walking mm. down the street with a face mask on. Are you kidding me? They're absolutely right. People are going like, oh, my God, what's going on there? By the way, we're getting a lot of letters, I mean, emails from people asking how they can wear uh, make a face mask you don't have to make one you can use a scarf a lot of people use scarves they are not perfect but there's but there's something to cover well except face. let me go further than that if you go on youtube uh, there are a million uh, home things and even if you don't have a sewing machine the paper towel one thing. of the, well paper towels one thing this woman did this there are a million of these just folded a bandana in a particular way yep. not wearing it as a scarf kind of thing folded it into rectangles whatever Put those hair ties, those elastic hair ties on the end. No staples, no sewing machine, no nothing, and it's fabulous. So the answer is just do a little YouTube, and then you can figure this thing out pretty uh, obviously. Why are you making a weird look at me? No, so I was thinking about how you would attach the hair ties without anything. I, I don't know. Just check out the video. I don't know. Um, and he- here's Miss Susan. She says um, – Oh, no, that's the wrong one. That was a person that was dividing into mass. And the, uh, forget it. I can't find the email. Okay, good. Dell and Harvard, hi. Hey, guys. How's it going? Good. Good. Yeah, so I've been thinking, why why haven't we stopped people going into the stores? Say that again, why I didn't don't hear you. We just, so I was thinking, why don't we stop people going into stores? Why don't we switch to an all-delivery model? Because that way you can hire a bunch of people who are out of work anyway. But I think you reduce the risk considerably that way. Well, I wonder, I guess, I mean, deliveries are laden with problems too, but it probably would put fewer... Right. I mean, the answer, it could be contactless delivery, too. So I guess I'm thinking exactly. out loud, Dell. So that means that we don't have the, the closeness, the cashier problem. We don't have the customer yeah. problem because the customer is sitting in his or her house. Maybe that's a good idea. I, maybe they just can't handle the capacity. But I, it's a creative thought. And it's a bunch of people out of work. I yeah, but you don't want to. We have a horrible connection. Yeah. We got to let you go. But we got your point, Dell. Thanks. You just don't want to put them at risk either. But that's, I guess, an alternative. It's a creative way to go. You know, Gail is talking about something I think a lot of us have done, which is What's divided it? your list at the grocery store or the pharmacy into needs and wants. The needs of things you absolutely have to have that moment, and then the, the wants that you can wait. I mean, most of us are not used to waiting for anything we can afford to get it right do you remember needs and wants one of the most interesting conversations we had with those two words in it you'll remember this when i say it remember who said this to us once many many years ago andy card was a former state rep oh yeah from massachusetts who went on to do chief fairly well in his life chief of staff to george bush to w. george bush during uh, uh by the 9/11. way during 9-11 and he told some incredible stories and one of the last times uh, he was with us he told a story I made a joke about. So could I have gotten an appointment? You were the gatekeeper with President Bush. And he says, Jim, I will say to you what I said to everybody who made that request. There are needs 
and there are once. And you would fall into the want category. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty good. That was pretty good. Brian from South Boston, thank you for calling. Hello, Brian. Hi, guys. Um, big fan. First time thank caller. You. And, thank you. Uh, um, just to touch on something from yesterday, one of the things I can't do without uh, is hearing um, the familiarity of, of your show. Oh, one. Oh, I thank you. Laughter. And I love uh, how Jim you, um, has that propensity to humanize everything. And, uh, you know, everything's, uh, I think, uh, in these times, familiarity is something that, you know, that, that we lean on, that we need. But uh, Thanks. But I just wanted to touch on a couple of things on point. Sure. So that um, I generally will bring, I'm like a Starbucks guy or Dunkin' Donuts if need be. But uh, as of late, I've been using a thermos and bringing my tea. I forgot it today. So I stopped to get gas and I looked into a speedway and they had the tea in there. So I waited for everyone. There was only two people in there. I have my mask. I have my gloves. And then I'm looking at the sugar that's open. So I decide to use like the the packets that are, you know, uh, that are closed. Uh, Then I look for the milk. uh, And that's in one of those cows with the Mm -hmm. leather. So I'm Mm -hmm. thinking you're better off. Obviously, with the creamers, which I, I uh, you know what I mean, because I'm thinking, you know, like some ding dong could have come in here and sneezed or whatever. Yeah. So, um, anyways, um, the reason, uh, the other reason I'm calling um, uh, is okay, so I am, I'm a plumber, and mm-hmm. I remember um, back when I took my plumbing exam, um, the, I will never forget it, some 25 years ago on the, the very first, um, I don't know, the sentence on the exam was uh, the plumbers of Massachusetts, guardians of the public health. And that's, that's something oh, that's... I love that. Yes. So when you, you think about it in terms like this, a lot of people, and for a very good reason, don't want you coming to their house, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, as a potential. And, uh, you know, I have, having four children and my wife's a nurse, so uh, you know, she's running two uh, the, the front lines when most people are running away. Um, anyways, but in the sphere of, of the public health, where, so, uh, uh, for example, right now I'm parked and uh, I'm going to clear um, some drains. So that's a public health issue when you have standing water in, in, in sinks and you can't wash your hands, you know, mm. and, and, uh, or, or something like hot water, uh, you don't have hot water. Now, these are exceptions of, uh, in some cases in that you're working in a basement with nobody around, you know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. But uh, for the most part, I've had tons of cancellations because like some a guy called me to put in like a laundry sink and then obviously his wife probably said, I, I don't want anyone coming in, but you, know, you can yeah. see why. You know? and, uh, but uh, but they, um, more importantly, uh, you guys cheer me up. Uh, oh, Brian. Yeah, well, th- thank you. Hey, you Brian. cheered us up. So do you feel, do you feel, do you feel, we're, we're almost out of time here, Brian, but do you feel nervous going into people's houses or do you feel okay if you got the gloves and the masks on and you're. I do. I have my bleach here. Yeah. My, uh, you know, my, uh, I, my uh, 70% alcohol, I, bet, uh, I wow. was fortunate enough to have a box of, uh, not in the best shape, but those, uh, the 95 masks. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, so, right. and I've been using them. Uh, my wife's telling me that, you know, when she goes in, she's got like 16 uh, COVIDs on her floor. She's oh. over at Physio Deacons. Oh. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, I mean, they're... they're 
we're, I guess we're all heroes in, in, to some extent, you know, I mean, there's something more, uh, but, but none more so than, uh, like you say, the people that are, that are, are behind the cash registers and, and the, the medical profession. Yeah, well, your wife, wife Brian, let me tell you, tell your wife we're thinking yeah. her too. Talk about top of the list of people with courage. Brian, Brian thank thanks you to you and thanks to her. Yeah, and good luck to we her and good luck to you. Uh, coming up, we're going to talk to John Gruber, MIT economist, about the true, true, the two, excuse me, trillion-dollar stimulus package. Uh, does it offer our healthcare system a strong enough lifeline to survive this disaster? MIT economist John Gruber is next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And the coronavirus outbreak has hit our healthcare system twofold. First, obviously, putting an enormous strain on hospitals as they scramble to treat the mounting number of cases of COVID-19. Then there's the medically induced coma that the economy has been put in, which means mass unemployment, potentially millions of people who no longer have health insurance. Will the $100 billion the coronavirus stimulus package is dedicating to our healthcare system be enough? Joining us in line to talk through this is Jonathan Gruber. John is the Ford Professor of Economics at MIT. He was instrumental in creating both the Massachusetts Health Care Reform and the Affordable Care Act. His latest book is Jumpstarting America, How Breakthrough Science Can Revive Economic Growth and the American Dream. John Gruber, good to talk to you. Good to be here. Hi, John. Well, will the $100 billion um, the stimulus package is giving to the health care system be enough? Will it? Uh, no, it won't. Um, this is... Uh, you know, there's basically two issues. There's the issue of is it enough and how uncertain is it? So let me explain what I mean by that. One is, is it enough? Uh, the best estimates of the net cost uh, of the coronavirus uh, to our health system are between $100 billion and $500 billion. Um, so uh, clearly $100, uh, 100 billion is at the very, very low end, and it's unlikely to be enough. Um, the tricky part is, is the uncertainty piece, which is that's just the cost of the corona, and healthcare systems are between this sort of tricky scissors. On the one hand, they have all these coronavirus victims. On the other hand, they're not getting their elective care patients anymore, which are their high-margin patients off which they made a lot of money. So there's another piece of uncertainty, which is will those elective cases bounce back? Will they end up making that up or not? And the extent they lose that, that's extra pressure on the system. That's going to have to be made up. Can I ask you a question I don't understand? I, I know that when we were worried about the surge in the hospital, it's kind of an all-hands-on-deck deal. Uh, but there was a story in the other day about an obstetrician who's seen her practice plummet. She's obviously delivering babies. Or people that are right. doing things not in hospitals but in offices. A lot of health care goes on that's not serious stuff, elective stuff in, in, I don't know what you call them, surgical suites or, off, or whatever. Why can't, when the surge is over we very quickly go back to that, and it looks like we're getting close to that point. Well, we're not that close to that point. Um, uh, you need the, you know, you really need uh, the, sur- the the infection rate to be quite low before you're going to want people going back and doing elective surgery and voluntarily exposing themselves to to uh, to these situations, certainly, in particular, until you have enough protective uh, personal equipment. But, you know, we just don't know what sure it's going to bounce back. I mean, clearly, if you had a, you know, dental cleaning, that's going to come back. Uh, but if you had a back surgery and your back feels better, you might not get that back surgery. Uh, and we just don't know how much of this is going to come back. And that's a big source of uncertainty on the healthcare system. That's why, you know, economists are recommending 
that the money that the government gives be both in the form of grants but also a lot in the form of loans. And those loans can be recoverable based on the extent to which these provider services do bounce back uh, or not. You know, John, I want to stay on the $100 billion for a second. Marjorie and I have talked a lot about the so-called paycheck protection provision, the $349 billion in forgivable loans for small businesses. Now the administration is looking for another $250 billion because the demand is high. We've talked a lot about the direct payments, including with you. I don't understand what the $100 billion is intended to pay for. I understand it's not enough, according to you, but what it's intended to pay for. For example, there was a great exchange the other day. John Roberts from Fox News really, really at a press at the coronavirus task force really put the pressure on Pence and Trump around what happens not on testing, but treatment for those who come down with COVID-19 who are uninsured. And uh, uh, and the question was in the context of the decision by the Trump administration to not uh, reopen healthcare.gov or dot or whatever it is dot gov the marketplaces to allow people you know to access uh, the Affordable Care Act, which you were intimately involved in. So I guess my long-winded question is: Is part of that hundred billion dollars intended to pay for treatment of people who are currently uninsured, or is that another potential burden? So uh, your, your question raised a couple issues, Jim. So first of all, as you said, there's multiple programs. Um, but none of the other programs deal with uh, certainly large health care providers uh, who can apply to the Small Business Bailout Fund uh, who are going to see, um, who are gonna be, see large potential reductions in their revenues. Uh, and so that's why you need to address this. And one of those sources of reductions is going to be through increased care for the uninsured. And basically, we haven't really addressed that. I mean, some people are saying, oh, that can be Trump. Uh, the Trump administration said, oh, that can be part of the $100 billion. Well, that is going to mean that we're going to need even more money beyond the $100 billion if it's also the way we're going to pay for the uninsured. Uh, many of us, and, and I wrote this in, in a Washington Post editorial, would like to see there be a dedicated fund to help mm. the un- uh, Essentially, you know, Massachusetts used to have something called the Uncompensated Care sure. Fund. And, and the way this – it still does. It's just not as important as it was. Uh, the way this worked is uh, hospitals all kicked in, and when a given hospital saw the uninsured, they billed it to that fund, so no hospital took the hit for seeing the uninsured. We should have a federally funded uncompensated care fund for COVID-19 patients. When uninsured patients come and get their COVID-19 care, they should be, hospitals shouldn't be left with that burden. They should be able to build to a fund that, in this case, is paid for by the federal government, and that rather than trying to figure out how much of the $100 billion should compensate hospitals for that. Let's just do it directly through that kind of fund. You know, the thing I don't understand is that whenever there's an issue like that, often in our discussions with you, the first thing I say to myself, well, a huge percentage of the people in Washington don't give a damn about poor people, don't care if they have health care, don't care, frankly, if they die from they're not as worthy as people who are not poor in the minds of many in Washington. But this should be an exception here. It seems to me even if you don't like poor people or care about poor people, you do care about them being infected and uh, uh, infecting you. So why isn't an obvious idea when they're spending so much money like yours uh, incorporated in what they're appropriating money for? You know, I, 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 I can't tell you. It certainly was part of what the House was talking about when they were involved in their negotiations over the so-called round three it's certainly part of what people are discussing in the early discussions of, of round four. It is, okay. Um, but, but, but the politics are, anytime you bring up health insurance, 
uh, you get into larger political issues that, that are hard to deal with. I mean, you know, another way you could do this, you could deal with the uninsured that's also being discussed, is you could offer special enrollment into Medicaid for uninsured individuals mm. for the duration of this crisis. Uh, but that gets into the politics of the Medicaid expansions. Um, so I think you're right, Jim. There's a lot. There's a lot of sensible solutions here. You could set up a fund. You could have special enrollment in Medicaid. There's lots of ways you can deal with the uninsured costs of the coronavirus. Uh, but we need to get past the politics. By the way, we have Richie Neal, Congressman Neal, who is the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee, on with us tomorrow, and we will add that to our list of things uh, to discuss with him. We're talking to Jonathan Gruber, MIT economist. So, Jonathan Gruber, you wrote another great piece for Newsweek magazine about telehealth, uh, not the emergency room, needing to be the front line of the war of coronavirus. Let's start with uh, what exactly is telehealth? So telehealth really sort of takes two forms. One is uh, it's uh, the new version of on-call. So if you've got your PCP and you would need and, and, and you would need help, you had a question about you're not feeling well or some other question, you would call your PCP's on-call service. You'd speak to your PCP, by the way, is primary care practitioner, your, your doctor. Um, you either talk to your doctor or maybe someone else in the practice, um, and they wouldn't get paid for it. Telehealth is basically saying let's formalize that. Let's use video where possible for you to interact with your doctor, and let's actually reimburse them for their time they're spending on this. That's one aspect. The other aspect is that a large share of Americans, perhaps a third or more, do not have a primary care uh, a doc, uh, provider. Uh, for those individuals, telehealth means reaching out to other, to directly to providers of telehealth that have doctors on call who can help you. Um, and that's a particularly, right now, it's a particularly valuable tool for people. And the reason it's important is because we have to keep people out of the emergency room. I mean, the emergency room is the new cruise ship, right? We have to keep people out of the emergency room. And the way to do that is by getting them to get their needs met over telehealth rather than rushing the emergency room when they're not sick and as a result becoming sick because they're around COVID-19 patients. You know, I had my first telehealth experience uh, a week or so ago, and I'm assuming that the doctor was complying with the rules laid down by by the hospital, but the first 30 seconds, and I'm not faulting her at all, the first 30 seconds of the discussion was reading a boilerplate something or other about how this is a telehealth thing, uh, this, uh, this you'll be charged for this visit, et cetera, because obviously most of us are not used to it. But I'll tell you, it's a hell of a bedside manager, manner to uh, initiate a, 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 quote, appointment over, in that case, was over the phone with a, a, a doctor. Is that, is that, I assume that's fixable, right? It really doesn't set the right tone for me <laughs> in this new sort of relationship we're going to have with our doctors. Well, I mean, this is a, a fascinating point, Jim, which is that basically we haven't used telehealth appropriately in this country. There's been a real barrier to telehealth adoption. As I say, primary care providers weren't reimbursed for their, for their telehealth consultations. These, these telehealth companies really weren't being used broadly. All of a sudden, we realize the benefits of telehealth, but we're doing so in an environment where we've got to suddenly ramp up enormously, uh, where basically there's not enough doctors for these online telehealth companies, where doctors are just getting used to actually being reimbursed for care for mm -hmm. this care as they, as they should be. So there's going to be, it's going to be a rocky, a rocky transition. The key question is, how do we both make telehealth maximally flexible to deal with this crisis, but also use this? As a, a, as a groundwork for expanding telehealth to re reach its potential in the U.S., we have massive overuse of the emergency room in the U.S. That can be dealt with through appropriate telehealth, and it even 
even it doesn't even have to be humans. So Massachusetts has set up a website people should go to if they at all feel worried that they have COVID-19 symptoms through Bowie Health, B-U-O-Y Yeah, we Health. saw this press conference, um, yeah. Uh, and basically, this is a website where you can go on, and there's an artificial intelligence-enabled chatbot, which will basically collect your symptoms and help you decide, do you need to go to telehealth or to the doctor or to the emergency room, or can you just stay home and do watchful waiting? And this, in their first... In their first, they've been dealing with about 10,000 people a day in their first week, and they're finding that about half of them they can just send home without even following up in any way with either telehealth or a real doctor and, or a live doctor. And that's hugely helpful in terms of deferring the demand on our telehealth system and our medical care system. You know, so, you know, it, it, but matches the only state I know of that's doing this. You know, you, it needs to be a national priority. You mentioned this in your column, this Bowie Health thing, which is B-U-O-Y Health. Um, Baker had him in his press conference, the guy who runs it the other day. Yeah. Um, but yeah. you said in there that um, Bowie Health found that 85% of those using their tool did not need a consultation, which made me wonder, does that mean we're all just kind of nervous and looking for reassurance if we get a headache, or what, what's going on there? Basically, I think that um, uh, a lot of us, first of all, don't really have COVID-19 symptoms, and we just don't know. Yeah. Um, a lot of us are young and healthy, can basically sort of sit it out at home if we've got mild COVID-19 systems, uh, symptoms. Uh, and a lot of people can get the help they need through an online telehealth provider. And there's just a relatively small set of people actually need to go in and see a physical provider. And if we can get people properly triaged in that way, where they're using telehealth when they can, nothing when they can, or go see a doctor when they need to, that is going to reduce the pressure on our healthcare system. You know, the term you've been hearing a lot is flatten the curve. Yeah. Mm. Okay, that's the term we talk about. Let's talk about, let's remind, remind the listeners why that's important. It's not that it's necessarily that so many fewer people ultimately get COVID-19. It's that we want to make sure that at no point do we surpass the capacity of our medical system. That's what it's about. Right. And basically it's about, it's, so really flatten the curve should really be referred to as stay below the line. It's basically a line, which is our medical capacity, which is growing but slowly. Uh, we don't have enough ventilators, things like that. That's not a problem because ventilators are reusable as long as we keep people below the capacity. And what flatten the curve does is by spreading out the cases, we do that. And one way to do that is to through social distancing and other things which reduce the number of cases. The other way is to reduce the demand on the existing medical resources, basically essentially not just flatten the curve but raise the line raise the line by essentially expanding the possible set of things that people can do medically besides just going to the emergency room. By the way, a friend of ours a couple of days ago forwarded a message a lot of you have seen, uh, and it said, after three weeks of M&Ms and pizza, <laughs> I could flatten the curve by sitting on it, which I think speaks for a lot. I have a couple that of things <laughs> for you, uh, uh, John. One, one, I don't know if you said this already. One of the things Governor Baker did the other day is require, mandated, that insurers actually cover medically necessary telehealth services. So that was obviously a step in the right direction. And I only mean this next thing, only half as a joke. Uh, can I sue a chatbot for malpractice? I mean, what happens um, when it tells me, when AI tells me I don't need to speak to a doctor, I can, they have said, just stay home and you know take aspirin when they're wrong? Uh, that's a great question. And one of the things we need to work out, I think the way these um, let's be clear. Let, let's separate the sort of chatbot from telehealth. So let's talk about three pieces. Let's call it a front end, which is, which is the part where you don't deal with a human. That's the Bowie Health part. But once again, 
lots of companies do this. Mm-hmm. There's then the calling your doctor for people of a relationship with a PCP. There's calling your doctor. And then there's calling these telehealth companies if you don't have an existing relationship mm-hmm. uh, with a PCP and you need someone else to call. Um, for the second and third part, we have well-established malpractice protocols. You're asking about the first part, which is if you just engage with a, with, 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 with a front-end AI tool and they get it wrong, who do you sue? I, I don't know. I mean, that's the kind of thing we need to work out. That's solvable, um, and we can work it out. It's also true that I think the way these things are set up is if there's really sort of – they have a pretty low risk threshold for telling you to get consultation. Uh, so I think the, light, the, the odds they tell you, I don't worry about it, and you die are, are very low. Uh, but if, if they're non-zero, then we need some kind of malpractice rules around that. I agree. You know, one, one last thing for me on this particular issue is uh, people know we introduce you this way all the time. One of the architects of the Affordable Care Act and Romney Care, and obviously expand the conventional wisdom is all of you guys did a great job about expanding access. You did not as great a job about bringing down costs. Why wasn't there a huge incentive uh, – uh, provided for telehealth in these laws so that uh, maybe the co-pays are less if you choose to you have your first consultation with your medical professional over a phone or a computer. You know what I'm talking about. Why wasn't that built into this to start weaning people away from unnecessary in-person uh, uh, visits? I mean, I think, you know, first of all, I think not a lot of doctors would agree with you. They're unnecessary. Uh, in a non-pandemic world, I don't think doctors necessarily want to encourage people uh, away from coming to their offices. Um, and this, remember, you know, Obamacare was a compromise to make sure that everyone was on board. And so we were really focused on getting people covered. And we didn't want to, you know, risk that by really upsetting the doctors and having them go to war against the law. And I think they might have in that situation. Yeah. I, I think this is really a change. This is really a paradigm change where we're realizing how valuable telehealth can be. And I hope that when we go back, we revisit that. Look, every major law needs to be changed. I mean, Social Security, you know, Medicare passed in 1965. The biggest change in history was in 2003 with the addition of a drug benefit. Mm -hmm. So ideally, in a rational political world, you take the Affordable Care Act and continuously tweak it to improve it. The problem is politics has made it difficult to reopen, so we can't do those tweaks. I don't think you have to do this through the Affordable Care Act, however. I think we need to just be working on telehealth provisions to Medicare, to other insurance laws, to, to really t- realize the benefits telehealth have and to make it a more foundational part of our health care system going forward. John Gruber, you're an economist, not a politician, but I'll ask you anyway. We only have about a minute left. But, um, about the politics of health care, uh, one of the biggest tragedies, I think, is when uh, – Governors in many states across the country refuses, refused to expand Medicaid so more poor people could get it, even though the federal government was going to pay for it. Now the Trump administration is seeming to do about face, trying to make it easier for um, poor people to get Medicaid. Do you think that's going to be one of the good benefits that comes out of this? I mean, basically, we need to get people in Medicaid. I mean, I, I personally would like to see Congress say that there will be a huge boost in Medicaid funding for states that expanded their Medicaid program as a way to get states to get there. I mean, it's crazy that, you know, as I said before, this is political malpractice, that states are, are not expanding their Medicaid program and taking full advantage of what the federal government is offering in matching funds, bringing billions of dollars into their states while covering their poor citizens. Uh, we need that to happen, and I think we need to, you know, once again, if you think about what killed repeal the Affordable Care Act, uh, really the fundamental 
thing that killed it was Republicans overreached and attacked Medicaid. Yeah. And I think a lot of people really Medicaid saved the Affordable Care Act because people appreciate what it brings to the table. They appreciate how valuable it is as a part of our social safety net. And I think, uh, you know, something like this episode only makes that more important. Hey, Jonathan, thank you very, Great very much. Great to talk to you, John. Appreciate Thanks. Yep, bet. Take it easy, guys. Stay you safe. You too. Boston Public Radio contributor Jonathan Gruber joins us regularly. He's a Ford professor of economics, the Ford professor at MIT. He was instrumental in creating both the Massachusetts health care reform and the Affordable Care Act. His latest book, Jumpstarting America, How Breakthrough Science Can Revive Economic Growth and the American Dream. Coming up, amid a pandemic, President Trump continues with his post-impeachment purges. National security expert Juliet Kayyem joins us for that and more and tells us how it impacts us. She's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, if you tuned into the president's daily coronavirus task force briefings, you've probably heard President Trump espouse the wonders of a drug called hydroxychloroquine. What does it do? According to Trump, it might cure COVID-19. But ask doctors Fauci, Burks, or even FDA head Stephen Hahn, and they'll tell you the jury's still out. So, does the president know something the rest of us don't? Or is his love of the drug tied to his investments in a company that produces it? In a few minutes, we'll ask medical ethicist Art Kaplan what he thinks. Sorry, stoners. Governor Baker doesn't think it's essential for you to hit that gravity bong while you're stuck indoors. Though medical marijuana sales are still allowed, Baker has made recreational sales a non-starter. But unlike other small businesses that have been forced to close, pot shops won't be able to tap the billions in relief funds Congress just made available. We'll talk to the Globe's marijuana reporter, Dan Adams, about that and more coming up on Boston Public Radio 89.7 WGBH. You know, at the end of the show, we're going to take calls on uh, what your reaction is to uh, Bernie Sanders suspending his campaign a few minutes ago. But you know what's incredible? Yeah, you know what's great? What? We're not going to mention coronavirus. Well, we might, but we're not going to talk about coronavirus. Well, but I would get – I haven't heard what he said. I would bet that one of the reasons he dropped out right now is – Well, at least it would be a change of subject. In any case, but you know what's interesting about this? I'm reading stories when Henry's doing the news here. Stock market just jumped about 400 points. You know what the analysts say caused it to jump 400 points? Bernie Sanders is not going to come after their money. Well, whatever. I mean, it is. It is really. It's incredible. So, again, in the one, roughly 130, we'll take your calls on the uh, Sanders suspending his campaign, which essentially means Biden is the nominee, which he pretty much was before anyway. But first, in the midst of a pandemic, how does America respond to a crisis that's hitting all 50 states? As governors are learning, often you can't count on the federal government. In a recent piece for The Atlantic, Juliet Kayyem writes about the tough decisions that these local officials, governors and mm-hmm. beyond, are having to make. She joins us in line to talk about this and other national security headlines. She's an analyst for CNN, former assistant secretary of the Department of Homeland Security and faculty chair of the Homeland Security Program at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. Hello, Juliet Kayyem. Hello, both of you. How are you both? We're, We're good. Fine. We're good. You? We're fine. Good, good. I should say um, – I was just in the kitchen with the three kids and uh, the radio, your, the WGBH was on and they did the short promo for me. Mm-hmm. And, and I, the, the three of them could not have gotten to the remote faster to turn it off. <laughs> so 
I'm very, I'm very, like it was like just dawning on them. So I'm now in the home office. They're all in the kitchen. Uh, and, um, and Boy, are they uh, missing so out? Hope, Let me yeah. tell you. I hope someone, I, I want to thank everyone listening because, yeah. you know. Don't worry about it, Juliet. Are... You know what? I've been on the radio for 20 years. I think my kids have listened to me maybe twice <laughs> in 20 years. That's a bad By mistake, no probably, too. whatsoever. Yeah, they listen to the station was, I got was, fired from. Yeah. This is what they do. It's really annoying. I know, but it was, it was literally like the, the, the coronavirus, like, coming through the radio, and they had to, like, turn it off, you know, to, like, you know, keep it away. But anyway, we'll have fun without them. We're having more fun than they are. Well, I, I, this story is not fun to me. It's making me I very know, nervous. We're, we're talking about uh, the president seeming to be on a purge warpath against inspector yeah. generals. The most recent, of course, uh, is the the inspector general that was supposed to supervise this tr- a stimulus package to make sure that people weren't, you know, it wasn't like an inside job or money was going to friends of wired people. Right. It, to, to, fraud and corruption, because that's a lot yeah. of money. And now he's gone. And, of course, he already got rid of uh, Atkinson, uh, Michael Atkinson, the guy yeah, who said, um, yeah. who said who passed along the whistleblower complaint totally legitimately uh, that led to Trump's impeachment. And the the Health and Human Services person that criticized him could be hanging by a thread here. So right, this seems to be a purge of people. Yeah. Who, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's like I don't even – I mean, it's sort of un- – I don't even want to say say it like it's 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 not it, it's so typical of Trump. There's the, the Republicans won't stand that to him. Susan Collins will wring her hands, um, and and it's just going to be this way until November, until we see whether the electorate is sort of sick of it. But at this stage, I have a different take on it. I actually think if you're Donald Trump, you're looking at the polling. You see what happens in Florida. Bernie Sanders now is out. Um, and you may be a private citizen uh, in less than a year. Um, and there is a lot of evidence that lots of things illegal happened during your tenure. Uh, wouldn't you want your people in the investigative bodies before you left? I think my personal feeling is he's positioning for losing, that he wants to get his people in to the investigatory bodies because he knows the first thing that's going to happen is everyone's going to realize how much corruption the Trump family uh, did during this. Well, you know, that's my my personal feeling. So he was responsible for getting rid of these two inspectors general. He says he had nothing to do with the resignation of the acting Navy secretary. And what caused it, uh, I assume you guys have heard this, but it's worth playing again. This is this incredibly crass uh, audio. May I just, may I just co- say something first before you get to the incredibly crass audio? Yep. Is that if, for people who haven't heard it, one of the most moving things I've seen in days in the midst of this mess was when Crozier uh, had been relieved of his command of this ship yeah. and he's walking alone down the gangplank of the ship and hundreds and hundreds of sailors are arch clapping, calling his name, Captain Crozier, Captain Crozier, like they're at a football game. You want to, if you That's haven't great. seen it, you want to get cheered up. Uh, watch that. Okay, go ahead. So Jim. in any case, here is after uh, Crozier uh, is dumped and after this incredible emotional outpouring that yeah. Marjorie described, here is uh, the then acting Navy, Se- Navy <laughs> Secretary uh, addressing the men and women on this, uh, this ship. If he didn't think that information was to was going to get out into the public in this information age that we live in, then he 
was a too naive or too stupid to be the commanding officer of a ship like this. You know, despite the fact, and he paid a price. Obviously, it was huge yeah. blowback. He had to apologize, and then he resigned. Trump said, "I don't even know the guy. I had nothing to do with it. Who knows whether that's true or not?" What 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 hasn't been talked about, at least in my estimation, enough is I don't know this modly guy from a hole in the world, the or, or, wall, this acting Navy secretary. When you hear language like that that is so totally inappropriate and unnecessary, the conclusion I draw, just like that infamous testimony from Justice Kavanaugh, that yeah. when he returned, where everybody in America knew he wasn't addressing the members of the Senate committee, he was addressing the president of the United States, naive and stupid was to throw a bone to the president of the United States, who himself had said that he th- – what did he say? He said, uh, Crozier, yeah. you know, he doesn't have to be like Hemingway and write a uh, – a long letter and leak it to the public. Yeah. But I, I have to say, I am whoever forced this guy out. I am thrilled that he is out the door. Oh, by the way, but I mean, this is like it's like the whole trying to game Trump is such a futile effort. And 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 they're all. I mean, honestly, Jim, they're all they all deserve each other. I mean, that guy, the acting Navy Secretary. I mean, the idea that he would literally fly to Guam. I want you to recognize this is what he did. He was in D.C. He flies to Guam after he sees those pictures. Uh, the captain has the virus. So he's, I think, in the hospital to make those statements. I mean, these guys, they, I, in other words, they all deserve their fate, whatever it is, because they're trying to gain. They're trying to, you know, they, they have no uh, sense of institutional allegiance outside of Trump. And what the problem with that means is. You're at the whim of Trump, right? Not at the whim of the institution. And so they, you know, drop like flies. But you know something, yeah, that's what I'm- just to get back to this inspector general thing for a, yeah. a minute, this is a very yeah. big deal if you have some lackey being the inspector general of the stimulus bill. Yeah. Because we know what happened in 2007 and 2008. And one of my biggest disappointments in Barack Obama is he never sent anybody to jail that he should have for the, for the shenanigans mm-hmm. that went on on Wall Street. Anyway, a lot of these companies that got these big bails, we know what they did. They made money for their stockholders. They made money for their executives. Right. They made big bonuses. And, and to think that while people are still waiting for their 1200 bucks here and the small businesses are, are trying to get banks to help them and everybody's struggling, that they're going to give all this money again to these huge corporations that, is, as many people have said, like the airlines, could actually go bankrupt. They could file for bankruptcy. Yeah. That's been done before. But what they're going to do is going to get this money to line their own pockets again. But inspectors general, your example, didn't stop it during the Obama administration. Yeah. He wasn't yeah. firing. No, it didn't. But you like Although to think Glenn we learn from our yeah. mistakes and that yeah. maybe we're not yeah. going to yeah. let this happen a second time. We're kind of slow in the uptake. Yeah, but I, I know. But, it's you know, Marjorie, it's like... So, yes, it's upsetting in the scheme of things that Donald Trump has done. It's maybe a three. Right. I mean, in terms, you know, despite, you know, sort of dropping the ball on a global pandemic, I put this at a three. And in the sense that the Republican Senate won't do anything about it. They will wring their hands. There will be corruption, as there has been. And now eyes on the prize for me personally, which is, you know, is November. In other words, there's nothing good is going to happen. He's going to become more desperate. He's going to become more angry. And he's going to now need to start to cover stuff up. I believe that's what's happening with the IG. He is putting his people in because they can't, they can be fired by, they generally aren't fired, but they are, most of them are career appointees. And so 
they will, you know, I personally think this is a man positioning for the potential, not, un, not, uh, not unlikely potential, that there will be investigations of him and his family, uh, you know, come January. And so he wants to get rid of the investigators. It's, it's so it's so horrible that I just say it like that. Like it's like it's like literally of all the things that you say about Donald Trump in terms of corruption, it's just so so matter of fact at this stage. Just because I've given up on Senate Republicans. Let's move to the states. You, I, I thought your piece yeah. was really insightful in the Atlantic. You can't, I don't remember the title was something like canceling. You know, shutting down your state was is the, the easy part. Is the yeah. easy part. Yeah. And you listed. Yeah. Four major decisions, two of them I have to say I've thought a lot about, which is rationing care. We're going to talk to uh, Art Kaplan in a little bit about what was proposed yesterday in Massachusetts, what was proposed in New York. Obviously, your schools to be closed for the the year is another uh, decision. But two that I had thought about very little, Mm -hmm. one actually not at all, one is – Police, particularly when you have yeah. something like New York City, where twenty percent of the uniform uh, cops are are already uh, infected, and uh, you know prioritizing what they do. And the last one I want to talk to with you is rationing something that I had never even thought about, which not rationing so much as when the vaccine is ready. I've yeah. naively operated under the assumption. Well, there are three. How many? There are 325 million of us. They manufacture 325 million uh, uh, doses, and we all get it. Obviously, not realizing they're not all going right. to come out at the same minute. So let's work no. backwards. What's the vaccine <laughs> issue you raise in your Atlantic piece, Juliet? So, bas- so okay. So basically, the way, as I've said uh, to listeners before, and just to you know get it is you know this is obviously the intense phase in terms of flattening the curve. We're seeing good data. Uh, anywhere from 60 to 200,000 will die in this process. That's a lot less than a million. Then at the far end, and, you know, we say 18 months, but it could be 24 months or 30 months is obviously the manufacturer and distribution of a state's vaccine. That's the only way you get rid of of the vaccine. So in between is going to be a whole lot of adaptation. We've never done anything like this before. It's not recovery. It's something else. We learn to live with the, with the, with the virus. So, but, but that 18 to 24 to 30 months will get us eventually to a vaccine. And people seem, um, I'm just referring to the scientists now, people seem optimistic that we can do it. And then guess what? As one doctor told me, a vaccine never saved anyone, a vaccination does, right? You can't, it's not the vaccine we're worried about. It's the manufacture and distribution. And that has to be done globally. So you're going to have equity issues there. But even once you get it here, it comes in waves. We're not going to get 360 million doses simultaneously. It's going to come in 50 million doses. So who gets to go first? First responders, healthcare workers, obviously, military, frontline, defense and security people for obvious reasons. And then what? Right. What what are the standards Uh, we have? We know how to do it. I mean, in the sense, we have a system set up, you know, through Homeland Security called pods, uh, points of distribution. It's not that complicated. You, you know, the vaccines go to a point of distribution and then then they get sent out to essentially to get into people's arms. But what is it? What does that mean? Like, who? I mean, the, the, the harder question of who do you pick older people who are more susceptible and likely to die if they get the coronavirus or 
younger people who might be carriers are more likely to be out and about and therefore could be responsible for community spread in greater ways, which you definitely don't want again. Uh, is it, you know, is it, uh, uh, do you do fair geographic dispersion, like an electoral college or, or no, like senators, or do you do house of representatives, right? <laughs> Density matters, right? And I mean, it ultimately comes down, as I said in the piece, uh, uh, you know, me or you. That's the, me or you. Well, you know? I decided I, that one. Let's. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you have an opinion on this, Julianne, or are you going to let the medical ethicist decide? I'm going to tell, and I'm going to tell, well, obviously, I think, you know, obviously frontline workers and, and uh, medical personnel. I, I'm sure I'm going to, I, you know, I, my personal feeling is our goal is to stop community spread. Yep. So we go for those who are likely to be responsible for community spread, which would be, you know, maybe birth date, um, uh, an alphabetical order uh, would be some combination of that, you know, but that's that you remember, you know, contagion and everyone says how real it is. I'm sure. not, I'm not watching it. it. In, <laughs> that's how they did it in contagion. Yeah. Did you know that? that no. that's, the last, that's the scene. They finally get a vaccine and there's like a, there's a lottery where the president is standing there like pulling ping pong balls. Oh my God. And you know, and it's different date. And it was by, uh, it was by year. That's the one where Gwyneth Paltrow drops dead in the first like minute and a half of the movie, isn't it? Yeah, 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 she had an affair yeah. with um, – uh, 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 she was married to Matt Damon, but – She was, married uh, to Matt Damon and she had an affair? Well, then I guess she deserved to die. Well, that's because die. she didn't have a goop egg yet. That's why. <laughs> that, that was, I have to tell you something. The, the movie is pretty realistic except for Gwyneth Paltrow having an affair on Matt Damon. That's yeah, I, I really. I mean, you have to draw the line somewhere, Juliet, I think, right? I know, exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. So tell us She's about – She's actually married to the brother of uh, a big deal local yeah. guy. I've been He's a good guy. He's a very yeah. good guy. Yeah, really I wonder is. what he thinks about the goop egg. Well, let's not ask. the candles ask. that Fine. smell like okay, let's move on. vagina. What do you think I, he thinks about that? I think about I those? know what you're talking about, and I, I think I should not have an opinion. I think that's a very good <laughs> right? judgment so on your that, part. I think I know what. I think that might have crossed my screen at some point, okay. and I think, I think I'm done. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's talk about one of the things you re- you mentioned in this great piece, which again is cha- uh, canceling everything was the easy part that you wrote for the Atlantic. Yeah, basically talking about cops rationing. What were you talking about? Yeah, I think I mean we're starting to see that now. I mean, I, I quote the Houston mayor, yeah, was which incredible. was kind of funny, but also very telling. The Houston mayor came out. So let me go back. So the uh, police departments are getting uh, hit because often you know they're the first to be called. Um, and they're also walking into homes or areas in which there's no, there was no good protection. So you're seeing really high numbers out of police departments, which we, which one could in, would probably have anticipated um, in any pandemic. So what, 25%, 20%? I don't know what the numbers are in Boston of either infected or uh, have to, have to be quarantined. So, um, so if you're the police chief, you have to begin to do two things. One is just move to essential services. So all non 911 calls, any calls that are probably not related to physical violence, so property uh, issues, you know, stolen car, uh, likely you are just going to have to wait. You're not, we're not going to send out a police officer to interact with the public when it's un- unnecessary and stuff. Um, so, uh, and that's what you're seeing New York uh, do. But the other thing is we're going to have to have set some standards for uh, dispatching police officers, let's say, and the example I use, which I had heard from a police officer, was if there's some, you know, uh, verbal or altercation between a husband and a wife, 
we all know that spousal that uh, wife beating, not spousal abuse, that uh, um, is up uh, right now. Really bad numbers. I, for, I forget what they are, but they're statistically significant numbers. Um, and uh, you know, do you send a police officer to de-escalate a situation when you don't know if the two people in the home have it? That's really hard. And what's yeah. the answer? We better start. No. My answer is no. My answer is my answer. You, you, we either figure out ways to de-escalate it remotely, but I would not. I would not uh, unless there's, you know, evidence of prior violence or something. But you know, th- this is the you're going to send a dispatcher in there. Your dispatchers are making these decisions, right? This seems not a good thing, right? In the sense that um, that's a lot of responsibility for them. I guess you know, uh, but mine would be in the absence of. Um, uh, legitimate concerns for physical violence, uh, any kind of physical violence. I think most stuff we should view as non-essential right now until we can get our police departments back up and running. Did you mention, did you mention, we played the sound from Sylvester Turner, (laughs) the Houston mayor the other day. Did you just, for those who didn't listen, did you just mention, mention what he said? Oh, so the Houston mayor uh, comes out and basically Sort of bargains with the with the uh, uh, with the um, criminals, uh, robbers, yeah. and then the criminals. And he says, "Listen, man, you know, don't do this. Uh, you know, to get away from your crime, you're going to get sick. We're going to get sick. No one wants to get sick." And it was like it was actually true. I mean, in the sense that uh, why not say that? Yeah. And also, um, also knowing that his police department was not. Um, not at full capacity, but but the notion of essential and non-essential services is, a, you know, police departments have planned for that, right? They you have to because unless uh, you know because police officers will get impacted by uh, the virus. The wonderful word the Houston mayor used, and I just loved it, was uh, criminals. He said should chill. Chill. Right. <laughs> I just yeah. thought that By was the way, right. is, it, is it? I assume this is obvious. Crime is way down yeah. in the United States. Yeah. No one's outside. So is pollution. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, there are these, yeah isn't that amazing? It's like only we didn't work and function as a society. Everything. I think it's proof. You know, if people who wondered uh, whether uh, climate change is human, is, is caused, is man-made, I think this is proof <laughs> of the answers. Yes. So you, we certainly can unmake it, right? So you also talked about uh, when we are back at work with the new normal um, and when we get there and how we get there. What'd you say? So um, I'm trying to get people, I'm just writing something up on this because it's maybe too hard to explain, but the the new normal is the vaccine. Just get that in around your head. And that could be a very long time because that's the only thing that's going to feel really normal. And it will be new because we will have gone through this totally crazy period with, let's just not forget, significant numbers of deaths, right? The, the 60,000 is not a good number, people. 60,000 is not, you know, this, this sort of, oh, it's not going to be 100,000. 60,000 is a tragedy. Thir- however many times over, 30 times over, no, 300, how many, 30 well, times over from 9-11. So, and but, Juliet, Juliet, just let me interject one thing, too. From yeah. what I've read, too, a lot of people are going to have significant lung damage, if they, even if they yeah, do survive. The, and, and mental damage. I yeah. Mean, oh, my God. I mean, on our kids and everything. But so, but, so now we've got to focus on when we're getting out of social distancing, so let's say May or June, if we get the test kits, to 
Um, and I'm putting a date out there, early 2022. Honestly, early 2022, we're going to have a vaccine distribution. What do we call that period? Right. That's not normal because we're going to be living with the virus. We're going to manage around it, across it, behind it. So I'm starting to call that adaptive recovery. I know that sounds wonky, but it's the only way to think about it. That's not recovery. That's not normal. And nothing about this, nothing about the next two years will feel normal because there's going to be, you know, we're going to be living with it. Right. Well, and the good news is we'll have better tools, we'll have better testing, we'll have better treatments, um, you know, um, uh, uh, we'll be able to uh, uh, test and trace, uh, we'll be able to isolate faster, but we're going to be adapting to it on a daily basis. And that's where I think we just, you know, I'm always trying to get people to get their heads around the next phase. That is the next phase. It's not, as Donald Trump says, the lights will come roaring back on. It is going to be a really weird 18 to 24 months ahead. It's not, it doesn't mean we're not normal. It doesn't mean we, you know, you know, don't love our kids, you know, don't, uh, don't go out. All that. It just means that there will be, uh, it will, it will not be new and it won't be normal. It's something else. So we'll figure out what it is as we go along, but this is what every country is discovering now. You know, there was a great uh, piece in the Washington Post by Dan Balls talking about how, um, yeah. yeah, we were flat-footed on this coronavirus, but we've been flat-footed on a lot of things, 9-11, Hurricane Katrina, mm-hmm. um, that we've got to really kind of get our act together. There was a really depressing uh, part in this, how people used to look at the United States as the go-to in anything done country and how um, that's changing. But what is he, what, yeah, so. yeah. No, I, I think it's. I think um, I, I don't view this as a nine eleven or a Pearl Harbor. I actually, you know, my my anger that I only partially toned down when I'm on the radio with you is is uh, there were plans, there were expectations, there was an understanding this could happen. There was data, evidence, uh, intelligence. There were people running around Then NSC, as described by the Washington Post, you know, yelling, this is 8.0 earthquake. Um, and, um, and we're going to lose, in a good news story, we're losing 60,000 Americans, well beyond any other country. So to me, this is, uh, you know, the surprise. I, I, I don't buy what the, S- what the Surgeon General is selling about the Pearl Harbor. You mean in terms of I, – I thought he was talking about the shock to the system kind of thing, but I, I, maybe I just totally I misinterpreted it. I think he meant surprise attack. I think he meant surprise. I thought oh, okay. the Surgeon General meant okay. surprise, surprise attack. Okay. Yeah. So are we going to yeah. learn from this? I mean, are we going to be more prepared? I mean, you've heard, you've heard for years how I you've think, been cutting back yeah. budgets and public health. Trump got rid of the pandemic I response. Think so. I think this has been so painful, and let's just assume we get out of it. I think that the surveillance systems will be stronger. I think the intelligence systems – uh, the sharing of information will be stronger. Food security, China, you know, um, you know, I, I don't, you don't, uh, uh, China has a reckoning. Um, that's not a political statement. It doesn't mean I buy into the Chinese virus language. China has a reckoning for what happened uh, because not simply because they'd been warned about these markets. We're not quite sure how it started, but definitely it was a bat in the market. Something happened, um, but also them hiding it for four weeks or five weeks uh, uh, from everyone thinking that they can contain it. Uh, So, uh, you know, so I think that there will be lots and lots of lessons learned regarding this, including, you know, for the U S should our stockpile look different? 
How do we think about managing through a crisis? What sort of communications would we have better been better off doing in January and February to prepare people for what was coming down the pike? Juliet, thanks. Thank you very much. Always good news. Good no. to talk tell, to you. Tell the kids. I know. I can't wait to see you. Tell the kids they yeah, missed an outstanding segment. They really should have I'll tuned in. They can turn it back. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'll see you later. Juliet Kayyem joins us every week. She's an analyst for CNN, former assistant secretary of the Department of Homeland Security and faculty chair of the Homeland Security Program at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. Up next... We'll talk to our medical ethicist, Art Kaplan, about a bunch of things, including if people go back to work too soon, what price will we all pay? Art Kaplan is next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. So do you still have to read or... Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Marjorie Egan. Donald Trump is not a pharmaceutical rep, but lately he's been playing one on TV. And I say it. What do you have to lose? I'll say it again. What do you have to lose? Take it. I really think they should take it. But it's their choice. And it's their doctor's choice or the doctors in the hospital. But hydroxychloroquine. Try it. If you'd like. Uh, I am... a man that comes from a very positive school when it comes to, in particular, one of these drugs, and we'll see how it works. I feel good about it. That's all it is, just a feeling. I, you know, I'm a smart guy. I feel good about it, and we're going to see. You're going to see soon enough. Uh, let's see what happens. We have nothing to lose. You know the expression? What the hell do you have to lose? Well, it turns out what you may have to lose could be your peripheral vision. That's one of many side effects, along with muscle cramps, extreme headaches, that have compelled some hospitals in Sweden to stop treating COVID-19 patients with chloroquine. Joining us online to talk about this and other coronavirus headlines is Art Kaplan. Art is the doctor's William F. and Virginia Connolly Mitty Chair, Director of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU's Langone Medical Center. And if you watch CNN, a man whose home library makes Anderson Cooper green with envy. <laughs> I have never seen anything like this in my life, very, Art Very, very impressive. Yeah. Was it the whole Looks room? Like, uh, bookshelves? <laughs> it's uh, styled on Harry Potter. Uh, <laughs> very, very impressive. Very impressive. You, you were number one so far on the bookshelf display. I'll tell you, you've won that contest, <laughs> hands down. So before we get to this drug that the president is talking about, uh, I, I want to get the most upsetting story out of the way. Uh, we heard about this going on in Italy. Now we're having the debate here about who gets um, a ventilator. Do you know about the Massachusetts versus other states' I guidelines do. yet? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so mm-hmm. what, are we, what are we doing here in Massachusetts? So, look, we hope never to get to rationing. So far, I have to tell you, almost without exception, even in New York with a heavy caseload, we haven't. We've been able to share, scramble, find ventilators, get dialysis machines. And what we're talking about here in terms of rationing is personnel, do they have enough protective gear to get in there and be safe? Uh, who gets intubated <clears throat> if you come to the emergency room? Um, who are they going to try and help breathe? Then sometimes you need a ventilator to assist you or oxygen given in other ways. And then sometimes you need kidney dialysis because, sadly, one of the side effects of this bad version of the disease is that your kidneys may fail. So we don't have ample, abundant supplies at all times of those things. And obviously, there's some limit on beds, although that turns out to be the easiest thing to stretch out if you need to do it. Remember, Marjorie, too, that the hospital didn't close. It's not just responding to COVID patients, right? There's Mm -hmm. heart attacks and 
<clears throat> car accidents and people falling down the stairs. So they're all swept up in this crunch at the emergency room. So what the uh, state did was it said, look, we're going to give you some guidance on how we think if you get stuck, and it's just guidance, you should uh, ration your resources. Um, that means who wouldn't get something, um, you know, if there wasn't enough for everybody. So we have to uh, follow the following guideline they say admit everybody don't discriminate right from the start don't eliminate the elderly we heard that happen in italy don't rule out the disabled don't do any of those things put everybody in the lifeboat that is everybody gets consideration if you will oops sorry <laughs> dropping my phone there i thought, I thought <clears throat> perhaps you slipped down the stairs mm-hmm. there for a second no, 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 <laughs> just my phone falling okay. apart okay. i have good books but not so good on the telephone i guess um so, everybody in, but then once you're on the lifeboat, how do you make a decision? And what they recommend is take the people who are likely to do the best. Take those who are going to uh, most likely probabilistically survive. And that means, you know, if you have underlying illnesses, respiratory problems, damage from vaping in your lungs, <clears throat> probably if you're over 80, it's not a good predictor of doing well in a ventilator, but you could have a super healthy older person. And then they're saying, look, other things being equal, if there's a tie, favor younger people and favor healthcare workers. So that's what they're suggesting. You know, but what I was stunned by, we talked about this whole rationing thing in general a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. I assumed there was virtual uniformity, obviously some minor changes. But I'm reading the story in the Boston Globe today by Liz Kowalczyk. And to say New York and uh, and Massachusetts, just as two places we've been following, uh, Massachusetts, as you said, greatest chance of survival, who is likely to live the longest, and another mm-hmm. priority is healthcare workers. Well, two of those three criteria, how long you'll live and healthcare workers, are not on the list of priorities for New York State. The primary <clears throat> thing there is whether you're likely to survive. And, and uh, I, I'm, well, I guess let me focus on one one piece of this and then one more in a second. Why did New York decide that medical people, healthcare workers, were not a survival priority since they're the ones that help everybody else survive? Well, it's pretty simple, Jim. The reason is that they were making a ventilator policy for swine flu. And the infection rate and the danger to people from that wasn't as nasty as this. So what they were paying attention to is they got a huge rush of people coming in there uh, in that flu epidemic, but it wasn't as infective and it wasn't as vicious. So here you need the healthcare workers even more, and they obviously have to be geared up in a very protective way to deliver the care, so you're rationing that. So the hospitals, if you will, become even more important. That's the simple answer. So one last thing about this, if I can, is we spent a decent amount of time on radio yesterday. And last night I had Don Berwick on, the former head of Medicare and Medicaid for Barack Obama, talking about the kinds of things we've discussed with you in many settings, uh, racial disparities. And the two Mm. most obvious from yesterday nationally, Louisiana and uh, uh, Chicago came up with data saying 70 percent of the COVID-19 deaths were of African-Americans, yet they only make up a third of the population. MGH came out yesterday and said that 35 to 40 percent of their cases were Latinos, well in excess of the population of Latinos in this area. And it seems to me, and, and that obviously is a function in great part of the horrible uh, inequities in access that pre-exist coronavirus. 
But if 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 people of color have so many of these other health issues that put them at greater risk, then it seems to me that the deck is stacked against them with these rationing priorities. They enter it with a disadvantage, and it's sort of doubled down on by the rationing. Do you understand? I don't know if I'm articulating. I do. I know exactly what you're saying. If you have underlying chronic diseases, diabetes, emphysema, chronic lung disease, because you didn't get good health care to begin with, now we're telling you, well, sorry, end of the line exactly. for rationing because, you know, you're not going to do as well. However, that said, I still think that's what you've got to do. It makes no sense to me to try and throw resources into people who are so sick that they're really unlikely to do well. I, I understand the inequity of it. There's nothing like a plague to bring home the reality that the healthcare system is inequitable. I can't tell you, Jim, Marjorie, the number of people who say to me, I'm shocked that, you know, sure. Uh, that that there might be people out there who can't get everything they need. It never occurred to them. They were like living in their well-insured world, living in their world where they had some money to pay their co-pays. And, and, you know, how many times have we talked about inequities in the healthcare system overall over the past five years? 3,000? It still shocks people to find out that, you know, everybody in America can't get health care and, you know, that there are these disparities. The plague just brings them out. You know, that is really depressing because one of the things we have been talking about ever since President Trump became the president was his efforts with his fellow Republicans to decimate Obamacare and mm-hmm. and and to throw millions of and but, which by the way Marjorie still go on in the middle of all this exactly exactly well apparently they've changed their mind a little bit about uh, people getting Medicaid from what I've read that they're thinking maybe it would be a good idea to, <laughs> to expand right Medicaid. although the court case against Obamacare is still sailing it's, along it's still sailing along and they're not reopening healthcare dot org exactly. for sign up yeah. so it, yeah. it's it's sort of I, I, who these people are is, says something not very well about their paying attention to their fellow Americans and what's going on yep. right underneath yep. their noses. Anyway. I think, again, people are sometimes self-satisfied, and it is true that the majority of Americans do have health care. And I'm even going to say the majority of Americans get pretty good health care when they need it. But there's this huge group associated with race and ethnicity, but really poverty, um, that continues to be left out. I mean, we say... The homeless have a hard time. The undocumented have a hard time. Those not poor enough to qualify for Medicaid have a hard time. People have a job that doesn't bring health insurance have a hard time. And they're all having a hard time. And now many of them are going to get zonked on a rationing scheme. Again, I hope we don't have to use. And let me say one other thing about that uh, tiebreaker thing with the healthcare workers. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> What's interesting is I've been doing it and trying to advise people is, I don't know what the Massachusetts interpretation is of a healthcare worker, but most of us think doctors and nurses. But if you don't have the laundry people, if you don't have the food handlers and makers, if you don't have the people who are the techs in the blood bank, then you don't have a hospital. So I believe healthcare worker, sure, give them some priority to maintain the places that have to deliver the ventilators and so on. But you've got to interpret it widely. I would even include first responders, right? If they don't get you to the hospital, it doesn't matter how many ventilators you have. So to me, healthcare worker, yeah, I'm all for it, but give it a broad interpretation because what you're really talking about is who's essential to make the uh, healthcare go. So one last thing, you know, we are, uh, this show has become, which should be renamed the bearer of ill tidings, but <laughs> there may be some hope in the place you work, New York, and I, but I want to make sure I understand this properly. The bad news from yesterday is I think a record number of deaths uh, Governor Cuomo announced. 
but also announced that new admissions to ICUs in New York have fallen sharply. It was like somewhere in the neighborhood, I can't remember, I can't remember my writing, 300 a day for six days in early April, uh, from late March to early April, and only 89 uh, ICU uh, unit admissions yeah. on April 6th. And what I think I'm learning is that deaths are a lagging indicator, and this admissions to ICU units are a more current one, and that actually is good news. Is it good news? It is good news, and that's exactly right. So if you need a ventilator, you know, you, the average time, I think, on there is 12 days mm-hmm. to death, if that's going to happen. So that number lags way behind admission. Um, the rate of admission in is really a telltale sign. I'd be happier if we didn't get stuck without testing so that we actually really knew whether we were missing some people who died at home or, you know, were misidentified as uh, admissions, uh, they came in for something and they didn't get properly diagnosed. But I'm going to say overall, yes, good news. And I think it tells us that social isolation, distancing can help. And it's now's the time to really, you know, buckle down, double down, don't give up because I think it, it will help. You know, just anecdotally, and from what I've also read and seen on, on television, an awful lot of people who do have the coronavirus, uh, you know, call their doctors, they have mild symptoms, they stay home, they never get tested. So do they get included in the people that have tested positive? Well, that's or a good they question. Just... You mean the counts? Yeah. That's a great question. Do they? No, they don't. They don't. They that's don't. what I thought. We, okay. we don't have a, you know, I look at countries like Germany and South Korea, yep. and they were testing and they knew exactly how many cases they had. We announced confirmed cases by test that make it to a lab that then gets reported to some governmental agency, and that's it. So we're undercounted for sure. Yeah, for that, sure. that's what I figured. We're talking about Art Kaplan, our medical ethicist. You wrote a great piece, Art, about the price of going back to work too soon. We all want to get out of this. I mean, the ep- economic toll on people is just heartbreaking. And um, But there are some some warnings. So what do you think? What would you say? Well, look, we are going to go back to work in normal life. It's just a question of note. We don't want to do it prematurely because we're all hating where we're at now and people suffer and uh, lose jobs and can't put food on the table. And that causes, you know, destruction too to to lives and well-being. So it's a trade. But while some people are saying, hey, let's just sacrifice some of the more vulnerable people and get back faster. I don't agree with that. It's not because there might be people who would say, you know, I'll forego some resources if that's what it takes. I'll take my chances, and if I die, I'll do it to get us all back to normal. Maybe we have enough noble citizens to do it. Hopefully we wouldn't have the government ordering them to die for uh, didn't that lieutenant governor of Texas get pretty close to saying you ought to go out and die for your country? If yeah, you're over if you're over 70 or, 70 or 65, whatever he yeah. said, he was willing to die well, for the sake of his grandchildren. Right. Well, <laughs> Other people well, objected the, to that. <laughs> well, here's the deal. You don't want to be dealing with this uh, virus for the rest of the year and next year until a vaccine hopefully finally shows up. Uh, so you don't want the thing incubating and coming back at us again and again in waves. So one thing to do is tamp it down, make sure it's gone, make sure it's gone, not just here, but places that we might trade with, um, that it's got to be under control there. The other reason is if you come back too soon and then you do overwhelm the healthcare system and the first responders with uh, another surge of cases, well, then you don't really have a healthcare system, and I don't think the economy can work that way. Yeah. You know, it, it, it won't function right. It will still. So, look, we're going to come back 
slowly. It's not going to be like boom, we're all out and everybody's back to business as it was. It's going to take a long time to restore things. What I'm going to say is we need a plan to roll out uh, how we come back, not just saying what date is it that we're back, because that gives the suggestion that everybody's going to run out the front door and head out to their favorite restaurant, which probably closed, and go to the cleaner. You know, that's not the rollout. So where are you on the great chloroquine uh, debate? Everybody knows we played the sound from Donald Trump marketing this relentlessly. Some places there is bad news. I mentioned the side effects from Sweden. For a short period of time, there was a an academic paper, which I guess has subsequently been challenged, extolling the virtues of chloroquine to treat COVID-19. That's in France. But again, it's been either rescinded or something. So where is Art Kaplan on the chloroquine question? Well, Dr. Trump, I think, is uh, out to lunch. Um, He doesn't know what he is talking about. The only reason he got wound up about this uh, chloroquine drug was there was an early report from France that it looked like it had some benefit. That paper was retracted yesterday. It's how bad it was. It, It literally has been pulled. Two studies from Sweden and Japan have shown really rotten side effects with the drug to the point where they gave up on it already. And the reason probably that's true is it's an anti-malarial drug, and the average person who takes it, I'm going to say, is 30 years old and was going on a safari. (laughs) It's not a 75-year-old with a heart condition who you expose it to. And remember, you don't know what dose, you don't know how often, you don't know what you're doing. So am I against trying experimental drugs? No, but you don't run out there and say, hey, what could it matter? Take your chances. What's to lose? It'll kill you. That's what's to lose. Plus, if we don't do it in an organized way and say two doses twice a day for Jim, three a day for Marjorie, Art will get one, let's see if it makes a difference, you actually miss the potential of figuring out if the thing did any good because mm-hmm. maybe you underdosed and you didn't realize it. So you got to do it in an organized way. I'm going to ask Dr. Trump to put aside his uh, medical advice and return to what he does so well, inspiring us all in the middle of this. You know, there was, I don't know if you just mentioned this, if you did, my apologies. Uh, uh, I was watching, a, I don't mean the specific reference to it, but in general, it, there are things like malaria, lupus, et cetera, for which these drugs are prescribed and are useful. Yep. They had video call-ins to one of the CNN town halls that Sanjay Gupta and uh, Anderson Cooper have been doing. And yep. one of the most painful ones i saw was this guy who suffers from lupus i think in florida oh gosh talking as about a week ago saying that he couldn't that it's life-saving for him that he couldn't get uh, the 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 chloroquine from any pharmacy wherever he lived in florida because everybody's snapping it up for covid19 so while they say on the stage at the white house that we're preserving uh, enough supply for those who have problems for which it is prescribed, that's a risk as well, is it not, Art? Yeah, it really is, and it is unethical to divert something from someone who is knowingly, we understand they're getting benefit, to try some long shot flyer where we doubt that it's going to work. You're just sort of hoping. Um, That's come up, by the way, for HIV drugs, protease inhibitors. People take those and live every day around the world, and there's been some suggested try those. But you can't pull them and kill one group of people to try a flyer in another group. And one other sad bit of news about all this, the president doesn't say it, but there are all kinds of people selling these drugs. I've totaled up there are 260 things in the pipeline that people want to try. 
many of them are uh, being touted by people who own the drug or have stock on the drug. Yeah. The reason you got to do testing is you can't just rely on their testimonials and their endorsements. They have a conflict of interest. By the way, Trump well, has a conflict of interest, too. He himself. owns a yeah. small stake in this say, yeah. Sanofi, yeah. or if that's how you pronounce that, it's a French drug maker yeah, that makes Sanofi. one of these drugs. And so, yeah. so, so do at least one of his major donors, oh, I didn't know that, that Ken Fisher guy. Yeah, he's on Fisher Investment Management. But I was going to ask you, though, uh, Art Kaplan, is it ethically okay if someone is in extremis and you, you haven't had the clinical studies, as the president says, what have you got to lose, if the doctor decides... What the hell? We'll give this a shot and see what it ha- see what happens. That's okay, or is it? Is it? Okay. Yeah, it, it is okay. Just do it in an organized way. Okay. Write down what you did. Yep. Record how sick the person was. Remember, a lot of folks in extremis still do recover. Yep. So here's an old rule that you don't want to endorse. The old rule of human experimentation when you're throwing things out in desperation yep. is if the patient dies, the disease killed them. If they got better, it must be the drug. Yeah. Well, it isn't always that way, and you want to make sure that you're at least, as I keep saying, administering this stuff in a way where you said, here's the dose I used, I gave it this often, this guy had these conditions, this is what happened. You've got to make those observations, or we're never going to learn what anything works. You know, I have a great idea for your career, even though it seems to be going relatively well. Have you thought about doing a thing like an ethical rating for things, sort of like the Pinocchios on Truth at the Washington Post. <laughs> That's a good no, I'm idea. serious, because no. I'm about to bring, you know, every day there's this one story that puts either Marjorie totally over the edge or me, <laughs> and mine today is, we all know about the four senators, Loeffler, oh, Inhofe, Feinstein, and uh, Burr, the chair of the Intelligence Committee at worst, who has an ethics investigation about their stock manipulation. Yep. Yep. One would argue potentially, and I use that term carefully over uh, insider trading, uh, uh, the latest story is unbelievable. I just saw it uh, on HuffingtonPost.com. Someone sent it to us. Senator David Perdue from Georgia purchased as much as $65,000 of shares in a stock in a company that produces personal protective equipment the same day the Senate held a private briefing about COVID-19. That was on January 24th. And the incredible response from one of his staff people to defend against this insider trading thing is uh, he wasn't at the meeting. As if nobody who was at the meeting spoke to a fellow senator. And, and so, uh, I mean, not right, so, only. So here's a simple question Why are these people allowed to trade stock with well, insider information? It's interesting. Every day about give, anything. Give a it's shout interesting out you to said our former senator. Well, let me tell you what happened. The day we mentioned most recently Burr. Uh, Scott Brown, former United States senator here, now the ambassador to New Zealand and I think Samoa, we mentioned that the Stock Act was one of the great things that Senator Ambassador Brown was. Well, someone communicated to him, him. He's now in New Zealand, and he texted me after the show. Let me read this, which speaks to the corruption of this Congress anyway. Yes, my bill would have prevented it, meaning the Stock Act. But when I left, meaning when he left Congress, almost immediately they weakened it as it affects them. It was weakened via a voice vote. No one from Massachusetts or anyone else were else objected. And so I looked it up, and while some of the provisions are in place, the transparency provisions have basically 
been wiped out of this uh, this thing. It's just so whether there's a technical violation of law or not, I don't know enough to know. But I just know this is so, so grotesque. So I, I will give it a rating. Yep. Pants on fire. So that's, I mean, it's unbelievable. <laughs> and it is disgusting. Unbelievable. Did you mention the other three besides Richard Burr? That's yeah, Lawler, Inhofe, and Feinstein. And, uh, thank you. You mentioned them all. Okay, this is a bipartisan scam job. Insider information goes past them. Plus, they make the laws that govern the industry. So they absolutely know about that, you know, what's pending, what's likely to pass, all that sort of thing. It's ridiculous. So how, what percentage of the books in that library of yours have you read, Art Kaplan? Let's get to the real important stuff, would you say? Well, you know, about 90% of them I wrote, so. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Okay, that's enough of you. Art <laughs> Kaplan, <laughs> it is great. And by the way, in all serious, you were, fa- I saw you this week, you were fabulous on CNN. Looking good, Art. No, looking not good. only looking good, which I know is what matters most to Marjorie, exactly. but you were yeah. really terrific. So it's great to see you there, You and your, book ca- your bookshelves, at the end of this, there's going to be an award for the best bookshelves, Marjorie's Art, given and it. you are getting my nomination. You're the front That's runner. the ranking that's coming the other way. Okay. Exactly. I'll Art, <laughs> take care. Thank good you so to talk much, to you. Art. Bye now. Art Kaplan joins us every week. He's a Dr. William Meff from Virginia County Committee Chair and the Director of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU Langone Medical Center. Up next, how recreational pot shops are taking a huge hit amid the coronavirus outbreak. The Boston Globe's Dan Adams joins us for that and more next on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. Back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy, Marjorie. And Governor Baker is giving new meaning to the term reefer madness. People who own <laughs> recreational pot shops, thank you, Marjorie, are fuming over his decision to declare their businesses non-essential because it could render them non-existent. Joining us in line to talk about this and other headlines about our marijuana industry is Dan Adams. Dan's the cannab- a cannabis reporter. There are a couple of them now. An author of This Week in Weed, email newsletter, The Irreverent and Definitive Insider's Diary of Legalization in Massachusetts. Hello, Dan Adams. Hey, guys. How are we doing? Excellent. Oh, okay, Thanks. Good Dan. To talk to you. Thank you very much for uh, calling in. So, um, course, how's, uh, how's, your st- how's your stash holding up, Marjorie? <laughs> Well, I think everybody now that, that everybody's going to be switching to edibles, Dan, right? With the coronavirus, they don't have to worry about any doing any damage to their lungs, right? I mean, you have to be out of your mind to be vaping now, wouldn't that's, you? Well, that's true. You got to take good care of your lungs right now. For yeah, you sure. got to take good care of your lungs. I'm not sure. Do we know anything about marijuana smoking in lungs? It can't be good for your lungs, right? Uh, you know what? I'm I'm going to uh, avoid uh, uh, Art Kaplan's wrath and not uh, play the role of the doctor when I'm not one. Uh, okay. But I, I I think in general I think in general it's common sense that uh, uh, you you know smoking anything is probably going to degrade your uh, your lungs capacity and that's probably not a good thing to do right now. Yeah. Certainly though I I can be definitive about one thing. Though, what? Which is that that these uh, these nuts out here who are claiming that. Uh, CBD or marijuana uh, or other components of the cannabis plant are somehow uh, able to cure or prevent uh, COVID-19. There's just absolutely no evidence of that. And you've had uh, uh, Kyle Turley, a former football player who now is in the CBD business. You've had a couple people out there kind of saying some, uh, you know, some really wackadoodle stuff. Um, and I just think it's really not, uh, not, not helpful, not constructive. And, uh, 
you know, people should not be uh, looking at marijuana as a, uh, you know, for salvation. Like, unfortunately, I wish they could, but that's not, not how it works. Well, thank you very much for adding that. So as, as we know, in Massachusetts, uh, the governor has decided that medical marijuana is okay. Recreational marijuana is not. Lots of people are extremely upset. What's going on, Dan? I actually am just getting word uh, to today uh, of a, a lawsuit on this subject. So, yeah, the, the governor has, uh, you know, allowed medical marijuana to remain open as an essential business, uh, even as he's shut down a lot of other businesses, you know, and, and for good reason, right? We're trying to keep people home, trying to keep people from uh, gathering in, in too large numbers um, and, and keep this thing from spreading. Um, you know, the, but the problem, uh, according to some, is that these recreational shops that he has shut down um, – you know, a lot of their consumers are, are sort of like patients, even though they're not registered medical marijuana patients, they nonetheless rely on cannabis uh, to play some medical role in their life. Now, for some of them, it might be that they're a, um, a veteran or a law enforcement yes. officer or somebody else who has a pretty good reason that they wouldn't want their name on a, on a government list of like, hey, here's all the people who, who use cannabis. I've seen those two-page um, ads may... from the Vets in the Globe, Dan, right? Full-page ads from that's, veterans. That's right, right. So... Right. So a lot of veterans. Now, I will say, I, I don't believe that as a matter of routine, you know, the VA or other federal agencies are, are you know, cross-referencing the medical marijuana patient list and, and, you know, punishing anybody who's on it. But, you know, law enforcement may have access to those records in certain circumstances. So I, I can understand people's squeamishness, even if there's probably not a really great reason to be afraid of being on that medical list. I know that the uh, state regulators take the privacy of that information pretty seriously. But nonetheless, you, like you said, you've got, you've got veterans, you've got other people. You know, uh, what about an undocumented immigrant? There's another uh, you know, community that, again, may have a very good reason to not want to be on that list. And so they frequent these uh, recreational or adult youth shops to get uh, marijuana. And but they might be using it to treat um, you know, either a serious illness or, or they may just be using it to treat uh, you know, anxiety in this time of very high anxiety or to, to help them sleep. Um, and uh, at the same time, you've got these smaller business owners on the recreational side. You know, the folks running those companies tend to be, uh, you know, a little bit more like the smaller homegrown entrepreneurs is all the equity stuff that I've talked with you guys about uh, over the years. And I think that that dream is really in critical danger right now, because with all these businesses shut down, these, these companies were already uh, in a fairly precarious position. They've spent the last two years or more maybe going through this intense licensing process, battling it out with the neighbors and the mayors and trying to get uh, real estate, trying to get financing, all these hurdles that make these companies, you know, so difficult to start up that we've, that, that, um, you know, we've talked about on the show a bunch of times. So, and then now comes this, now comes this order to shut down. And uh, already, you know, every day I am uh, getting calls from people who are essentially in tears, feeling like their, uh, their dream of uh, getting into this, this market is, is dead. You know, I have a bunch of things I want to add to this, every single one of which, I have borrowed from a great piece you wrote on March 30th. People should read this if they care about the topic. It's called Ordered to Close and Excluded from Federal Aid Marijuana Entrepreneurs Staring Down Insolvency. You, you raised and addressed everything we've talked about or thought about. We talked about a week ago with listeners about why liquor stores were deemed essential and uh, recreational mm -hmm. marijuana not. And a lot of people called in. A lot of people called in, wrote in. I was stunned. And said, well, a lot of people are going through alcohol withdrawal. It's really important they have it. And Marjorie and I are shaking yeah. our heads. Okay. However... You raise or at least address some really important issues. One, 
uh, uh, Baker's arguments, Governor Baker's arguments against this is people are going to come in from other states where it's not legal and use it. And somebody you interviewed in this piece said, well, then the state should say uh, recreational outlets are not allowed to sell yeah. to people except those who live in Massachusetts. We're getting those same, very same okay, emails. That's, so that's one. Massachusetts people. Okay, that's right. one. And, and Two, what, good. No, you go ahead. I was going to say what Baker has what, what Baker has said to that is uh, he's concerned that there may be a legal or constitutional issue there, maybe a commerce clause kind of issue. Let him go to court. You know, states in states states in general can't uh, you know you know restrict that kind of interstate commerce or discriminate uh, against consumers on the basis of res- residency. Now, however, the lawyers from the industry really strongly disagree with that. They say, look, this thing's federally illegal in the first place. So there's no right of access to this market that sort of exists at that level. And and second of all, given the extraordinary circumstances presented by uh, COVID-19 um, and the fact that, you know, the medical marijuana program, you, you can't get a medical marijuana card from Massachusetts unless you live here. So that's already there's already sort of a residency discrimination point. happening at that level. So they so they really disagree strongly with Baker's interpretation of that. But uh, that's what the governor has raised as, as as a reason to keep them closed. OK, next to, point. To avoid drawing those out-of-state visitors. Go ahead. This point is actually not from you. Actually, before I get to a point, one of the things you didn't address in your piece is you make the point, which I was not aware of in your story, that most states that have legalized recreational and medical marijuana do consider recreational outlets as essential. So we're the outlier. But one thing you don't address, yep. you know, it's one thing to say, we just touched on this, that a liquor store is essential and uh, uh, that uh, recreational marijuana is not. And I don't I'm not convinced, as I think is clear. But you know what made the governor's argument, I think, a little bit more indefensible is when the Beacon Hill decided it was OK for restaurants to do delivery of was it wine and beer or alcohol yeah, or some sort exactly. of thing. So wait a second. So you know it's yeah. one thing to say you need access to a liquor store so that you don't go through withdrawal. I don't think most people who that, have of that course, problem is not the only reason. Well, Jim, it's not, of course, no, no, I understand. A lot but, of drinking going on. No, I understand that. But what I'm saying is that argument becomes really tenuous uh, when you're advocating, not only advocating but signing in a law. Uh, a, a change that allows people to deliver it. That's not for people who are dealing with withdrawal. That's for people who want to prop up the restaurants, which Marjorie and I both want to do too. But it, it makes his argument right. against marijuana less persuasive. Can I continue? Right. It, is, it, oh, is very, it is very. It is very striking. I no, I agree. You can go ahead, but I agree. It's very striking to see the difference. Where not only is he allowing those restaurants to remain open in some capacity, he's actually expanding. Yeah, right, exactly. Uh, they are allowed to do under 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 the regulations, right? Uh, and 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 certainly. Though I think you know, if you talk to folks in like the harm reduction community, this issue of suddenly cutting off alcohol to people is a real medical one. And in fact, I understand. Uh, you're here here in East Boston where I live. I actually ran into a, a doctor from one of the major hospitals here, just uh, walking my dog around the neighborhood. And he he was telling me that a lot of their frequent flyer uh, alcoholics are suddenly all coming in with seizures, even though those stores are open. I guess uh, some have decided to close voluntarily, and uh, others have. Uh, uh, you know, they may, maybe they don't have as much money to buy it or something like that. Two other powerful things, uh, points that you make, neither of which I had thought of. I didn't know. I don't know if you knew, Marjorie. We've talked a lot about paycheck protection, the small business assistance here, the forgivable loans, $349 billion. Maybe if Mnuchin and Trump get their way, $250 billion more added to that pot. It never occurred to me, but this is so obvious till I read your stuff is that businesses that engage in is selling a product that is illegal under federal law don't 
qualify. So either I know I read that the, I think it was in your paper that Senator Markey is joining another whatever ten senators trying to have that change. They can't even these 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 smaller operations who are rec, which are recreational can't even apply for federal assistance. Dan Adams. That's right. No, none of the marijuana businesses can because right. the drug remains uh, illegal under federal law. And uh, so if you talk to folks in the industry, they say that that makes their plight all the more acute uh, because they are ineligible for those small business assistance funds and, and very likely for many uh, future funds that are, that are coming. If there's further bailouts, um, I, I don't really see a path at the federal level to expanding this assistance to including these businesses unless it was somehow accompanied by a you know, broader uh, legalization kind of a reform, which I just can't imagine that there's the political appetite or bandwidth uh, for that, you know, given the, uh, given the other things going on in the news these days. So my last thing on this, other, this terrific piece you wrote, Raising All These Issues, I know this is a Nostradamus kind of thing, but just like we've talked about, a lot of the smaller independent restaurants are going to be really – hard-pressed to reopen when this thing is over. I assume some of these smaller independent recreational shops that have been lucky enough to open, uh, like the first one that came under the social equity program in Boston, and a lot of uh, uh, those waiting to get their final approval to open, I'm assuming some of them are going to be driven out of business by this? Absolutely. I think some of them already have been. And it's uh, it is not just the retailers um, that we should worry about. It's also some of the suppliers on the uh, adult use side, some of the smaller processors, these micro businesses, these little edible companies, these people who, you know, uh, are basically what they do is they, they buy a big batch of uh, marijuana flour from one of the larger producers and then they turn it into some craft edible or a tincture or a, you know a topical lotion or something else that they specialize in that you know they sort of have a unique product these these little businesses are are already highly highly leveraged um, probably borrowing money at a really high interest rate and just barely getting it together to you know get the equipment that they need to pass all the inspections and everything and you know they're counting down the seconds until they can start bringing in revenue and paying back all their creditors and now you know what that date has basically been pushed out indefinitely and it's really hard to do any kind of business planning and uh, like you said being ineligible for those federal funds there's just really no hope or relief on the on the horizon and these companies their landlords their, their creditors they're they're sort of calling in uh they're calling in the money and it's definitely not looking good for these folks I'd, i'll be amazed uh you know, if half of them survive. We're talking to Dan Adams, one of the marijuana supporters from the Boston Globe. So, Dan, you also had a great piece talking about uh, working conditions at some of these marijuana stores. Two employees of the pot firm Netta, which is a great big one. They, they run the uh, the big one in the beautiful uh, Beaux-Arts Bank building in Brookline. Uh, but two of their workers, I guess they were not in Brookline, one in Franklin and one in Northampton, uh, were diagnosed with the coronavirus, and workers are obviously concerned. What's happening? Yeah, hearing a lot uh, from from workers uh, all of a sudden, and um, uh, you know, frankly, there have been complaints, go, you know, about Netta's facility over a longer p- period of time, which now are just really coming to a head given the circumstances. But uh, you know, these these folks basically say that uh, uh, you know they've been deemed essential workers. They're they're still continuing to work because uh, these operators, you know, they do they do both recreational and medical. So the medical side of things is staying open, and. Uh, you know, to hear them tell it, you know, they're working in pretty close quarters. They're not necessarily being provided with the personal protective equipment that they'd like to have, which, you know, understandably is being diverted to frontline uh, uh, medical folks. But at the same time, they feel like that leaves them in an unsafe situation. And they're really worried that this virus could spread very quickly inside these facilities and that if it does, 
you know, that in turn will have an effect on the medical marijuana supply chain. And that's where you really don't want people, uh, uh, you know, dry and not high, so to speak. <laughs> well, what are the rules? I mean, do they, do they have to keep the cashiers six feet apart from each other and, uh, you know, like where everybody else is supposed to be doing in a certain distance between? What are they doing? So the, so the, the cannabis has taken some steps to try to, you know, make these operations uh, safer. So one thing that they've done is that they're now allowing curbside pickup for medical marijuana, so you can sort of minimize that interaction um, of, of people. But yes, they, they're supposed to be practicing social distancing. They're supposed to be the number of people coming into the facilities. Um, the, the commission also uh, just uh, yesterday uh, announced that they're going to have a new uh, hotline uh, for workers who have safety concerns and a, a point of contact for them um, to report some of those those concerns. All these companies are also going to be required to report any if any employee tests positive for COVID-19, they're going to have to report that to the Cannabis Control Commission as well now. Um, so they are taking some steps to try to protect workers, to try to make the supply chain more robust. But those are sort of competing imperatives, right? Uh, on one hand, you want to keep the product, you know, being grown and manufactured and, and dispensed to the patients who need it. Um, but, the, you know, the more you allow that to happen, maybe the more you're putting workers at risk uh, in these facilities. And so it's a tough, it's a tough job the commission has got sort of stuck in between those two uh, obligations. So, Dan, I was, before you go, Marjorie and I are always looking for an uplifting story yes. in these times because there are so few. And there's a wonderful piece about these mutual aid groups in the globe, and it has your name on it. But since you're the marijuana guy, I'm assuming there are two Dan Adams at the Boston oh, thought, Globe. Or... When you said uplifting story, <laughs> when you said uplifting story, I thought you were going to uh, ask me about getting my medical marijuana card that I did last week. Oh, so, oh congratulations you to one? you! Yeah, it's really easy. It's incredible. It is? I wrote a little column about how easy it is because uh, you know since. Uh, uh, since folks, uh, uh, you know, no longer can go to the recreational stores, I figured I ought to just try to get my uh, my medical card, and I did. And uh, it, you know, so I wrote a little column about how how straightforward that was, and like the steps that you have to uh, go through. And what I'm hearing is that tons and tons of people now are suddenly signing up for their medical cards. The commission is even saying there's been a big surge in uh, new, new patient <laughs> registration. I'm embarrassed so because, to say I missed your piece. Did you make up a condition or not? No, no, no. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't invent anything. Yeah. I, I, uh, okay. Uh, you know, I basically, I, I, you know, I told the doctor that I'd use it in the past to, uh, you know, treat a, a sleep disorder, sort of a weird sleep oh, disorder that absolutely. I had, to deal with, deal with, to, to, to deal with stress, which is stress. True. And um, exactly, you know, he, he made a joke of, he, he, he made some jokes to me about which uh, uh, biblical figures he, he uh, thought were potheads um, <laughs> back in the day, and that, that was pretty much that. Um, 175 bucks, and then you know, all the state fees have been waived. They do it by telemedicine over the phone. Uh, you get your temporary registration by email the same day, pretty much, and you can walk right into the dispensary after Hold that. Hold on, so it's, 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 Pass- uh, it's Passover week and Easter week. Which which biblical figures were potheads, according to the doctor? I'm curious. You know what? I I, I, I am really not the guy to. Are you uh, not the guy? On that. I, that, that, okay. that, 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 I wasn't uh, taking notes fast enough. That that whizzed by me, and I don't want to uh, cast aspersions on the wrong biblical figures. Oh. Speaking of whizzing <laughs> okay. by, I'm sorry we missed that. I'm dying to read that. Actually, people should check it out. This this mutual aid thing. Just describe yeah, go what's going that yep. that's going on. That it's is neat. so it's great. uplifting in a downlifting kind my of time. My sister, my sister, I should call is her. Doing out. This? She's doing Meals on Wheels for people volunteering. Oh, that is Isn't great. that great? That is really great. I know. What's happening around our community with these things, Dan Adams? 
Yeah, so I, I was actually happy to get this uh, non-marijuana assignment from from my editors because I, I needed the mood lift after uh, you know hearing nothing but uh, uh, complaints and bad news from people uh, in, the, in the industry and community. So uh, what, what's going on is that look, you know, with the with the government sort of dealing with the most uh, crisis-like aspects of of this, some of the smaller sort of daily stuff or, or even big things uh, that that people are struggling with, we're having to rely on each other to to meet those needs and. Um, these, so, these so-called uh, mutual aid groups are sort of springing up all over the place. And basically what they are is they're just very simple online kind of spreadsheets where anyone can go in and say, hey, uh, I need someone to pick up my prescription. I'm older. I'm immunocompromised. I can't leave the house. Or uh, it could be as extreme as, a, you know, there's a, a foreign uh, college students who don't have a place to live after the dorms shut down and they're, they're desperate for a, a bedroom or a closet or any, anywhere that they can uh, rest their head for a few weeks. And so folks are going online, putting their needs into the spreadsheet, and then they're, they're separated geographically. So every neighborhood might have one in Boston, for example. And uh, folks are going on there making donations, uh, making deliveries, doing anything they can to sort of help each other out on basically a, a grassroots peer-to-peer basis. And to hear the stories of some of the people involved in this uh, is really touching. I mean, I think on the volunteer side, people are really, uh, they're hunting for a sense of purpose right now, right? I think everybody feels a little bit uh, in shock, a little bewildered, a little, uh, you know, we're all sort of reeling from the, from the suddenness of all of this. But we, I think, you know, being a reporter, you, you talk to a lot of people. I think people are fundamentally good and they want to help out. And uh, this offers them a venue to do that in their own community where they can go on, they can see what their neighbors need, and they can help a, an individual directly. So and you give can us really see the impact of, uh, of what you do. Your best story. Give us your best. Your best story. Uh, my, oh, man, there's so, there's so many. I think uh, one of my favorites uh, was the uh, uh, person who uh, had this sort of a, a traditional St. Patrick's Day dinner that she wanted to have. She always had corned beef on St. Patrick's Day, but she was an elderly uh, woman in uh, in Southie, and she couldn't get out to get her uh, 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 to get out get her corned beef. But luckily, there was a family nearby that was making some, and they were able to leave some on her uh, on her porch. I love it. And then, you know, watch her pick it up from a from a safe distance. So they they made her day for sure. And that's just a small one. But, um, you know, there's, there's much more profound things. There's people who uh, have, have let total strangers into their homes as, uh, as roommates um, just to help them out during this tough time. It's really touching. Oh. Well, tell the story about how your neighbor got your medical marijuana card. Why don't you do that? <laughs> <laughs> you can't do that on behalf of someone else. Oh, sorry. <laughs> don't, don't, uh, don't, don't advise your listeners to break the law. Here. That's hey, Dan right. Adams, great reporting and really useful yeah, and helpful you. reporting, too. You're doing great. Thank Thanks so much, Dan. Thank you very much, Dan. I'm glad your, your stash can be replenished now that you've got your medical marijuana card. Good for you. <laughs> I'll send you the info, Mark. Thank you. Thank you. I may need it soon. Dan Adams is a cannabis reporter and the author of This Week in Weed, email newsletter, The Irreverent and Definitive Insider's Diary of Legalization in Massachusetts. Thanks again, Dan. Up next, WGBH executive arts editor Jared Bowen joins us to tell us about the kind of stuff you can see and hear without leaving your own home. This is 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Mardrigan. Join us online to go over the latest arts and culture and news in the region is Jared Bowen, GBH's executive arts editor and the host of the TV series Open Studio, which you can catch Friday nights right here on GBH2 at 8.30. Jared, boy, do we miss you. Hey there, Jared. 
I miss you guys, too. It's great to be with you. Thank you very much for calling in, Jared. Um, So um, let's start with an update on uh, the Berkshires update. What's that? So I think we've been, we, we of course know what's happened around here in terms of theater and museum closures. And as you might know, the Berkshires becomes a hub uh, for the art scene in Massachusetts and for a lot of New Yorkers, of course, during the summertime. But we're starting to see now that that's shutting down, too. Just yesterday, the Williamstown. Yeah, I know. I know it's heartbreaking. Um, Just yesterday, the Williamstown Theater Festival, which is one of the main anchors, uh, decided that it's going to cancel its summer season with live performances. They are doing something interesting, though. They will be presenting their season on Audible which is, uh, you probably know, a lot of spoken word books and uh, audio books. So this is kind of a first to present an entire season, which was to include a streetcar named Desire with Audra McDonald and Bobby Cannavale. So it was just shaping up to be such a a good season. Uh, Last week, Jacob's Pillow announced that it's canceling the season for for the first time in 88-year years of its history, which you think, my goodness, so that means I stayed on even through World War II and you know, other major world events. Then other groups like Berkshire Theatre Group, Barrington Stage, they're all delaying their seasons or trying to see what they can salvage. Um, And this is hitting the museums hard, too. Mass Mocha is closed through May 1st. 120 of 165 employees are being laid off. Norman Rockwell Museum is having to cut staff. Um, So this is just hitting the Berkshires hard. And I think anybody who is hoping that there might be some semblance of a summer season, it looks to be fading away. So you uh, want to no tell us about? I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say no word on. Maybe you were just about to ask this. No word on Tanglewood yet. Although I know the Boston Symphony Orchestra is making a big announcement at three o'clock today, uh, and I don't know if it's specifically related to Tanglewood, um, but we'll be paying attention to that too. That was the question. I just got the email saying the announcement this afternoon. When you say Williamstown is doing something on Audible, what are they doing? Is this one of these things where all the performers read their parts from home, or what are they putting on Audible? Yeah, they didn't spell it out more than that, but that's what I assume they're doing, too. They have done this with other plays. I know they did this with John Leguizamo. Uh, and, yeah, I think they essentially produce an audio version. So it's like the, the great radio plays, speaking of World War II, that mm-hmm. you would gather in here in the 1940s or 30s. They've got uh, one of the things uh, I read from the Williamstown Theater Festival is this cult of love with Taylor Schilling that many of us know from Orange is the New Black. That's part of that audible thing, too, right? Uh, yeah, the entire season, and this what makes is what makes it a first is that the entire season uh, will be done out there. And and this, if you look at how this ripples out too, uh, Williamstown is often a place where you'll see theater incubate. Uh, you'll see pieces first tested, first tried out. Uh, a lot of times, these pieces will make their way to other theaters around the country, or even go straight to Broadway. Uh, so you know that this will have a, a longer impact, too, if they're not able to stage these here. They don't really get a trial run at this point. So, Jared Bowen, the Boston Theater uh, Marathon, and I think this is the thing where they're having these short plays on Zoom. And if I'm right, I love this. I haven't done uh, Quibi yet, but I'm totally into these 10-minute experiences. Do I have it right or am I confusing two things? No, it's absolutely right. That's right. I hadn't even thought about uh, Quibi and and how this corresponds to that. But the Boston Theater Marathon is something that's been happening for uh, years and years and years now. And it normally takes place around this time of year and which they gather a number of 
little tiny plays written by local playwrights and sponsored by theaters. It's all sponsored by, ultimately, by the uh, Boston Playwrights Theater. They gather in one day, thus the marathon part of it, and present all these plays. Well, they decided to be undaunted and go on this year because it does benefit the Theater Community Benevolent Fund, which is getting money into artists' hands right now as we speak, actually. And so they're presenting these little plays, about 10-minute plays, as we mentioned, every day at noon. So it's a little side of theater with your lunch, and all you have to do is go on to the Boston Theater Marathon website or Boston Playwright Theater uh, and log on, and you can log on to the Zoom um, app and and watch these plays. I watched the first couple. One was about uh, three ladybugs, the agnostic, the believer, and the atheist, trying to figure (laughs) out if there was something outside of their little ladybug world because it certainly seemed that some other forces might be in control of their world. It was really, really charming, and uh, I I loved it. The second piece, they did two in one day that day because they had been Zoom-bombed, so that is a real thing with people using pornography and and violence into people's Zoom sessions. Uh, But the second piece was basically about the consequences of turning Scrooge around and how the Cratchits just want to be rid of him now that he's so epically nice and uh, cloying. So it's it's a really great way to, to spend a little time at lunch and also do a really good thing in benefiting that fund. You know, as we continue this, the arts community has adapted so rapidly. I know there's still a huge amount of pain and a huge amount of un- and underemployment. But this next one, what the Huntington is doing is, I think, just brilliant. This Huntington at home thing. Describe this, Jared, if you would. Yeah, this is terrific. I mean, first of all, just uh, that's a great point about how much the community has adapted. Uh, you know, people who not, aren't necessarily watching my show or something, you know, friends from other parts of the country, they'll say, well, are you busy right now? And I think, my goodness, I'm more busy than ever because so so many artists are doing so many things so quickly, uh, and it's my job to keep up with it. But it's a, it's a great job. It's keeping me busy and wonderfully distracted during all of this. But Huntington at Home is a perfect example of this, and they're doing things a little bit old school, as they told me, whereas you see a lot of theaters putting material online, which is really engaging and great. Huntington at Home has an analog process whereby you sign up on their website and you'll get a phone call. So it'll be an actor or an accountant or somebody from the scene shop who will call you and you can get the inside scoop on a favorite production. You can ask questions about theater or the real big delight in this is that they'll do a monologue for you. And this is all the brainchild of Melinda Lopez, who's a playwright and artist in residence at the Huntington theater company. They got all the staff together and apparently one younger staff member had the notion that maybe not everybody has access to social media or is so facile with a computer. So why not just call people and have that one-on-one interaction? So they've started it already and they're doing everything from August Wilson plays to the Romeo and Juliet balcony scene. Ah, okay. We have a little sound from this. Um, this How upset are you though, if you get a call from an accountant rather than one of the (laughs) actors? I mean, I love the concept, but what do you ask them to sing West Side Story or something? I mean, really? (laughs) So here's actor and songwriter Lauren Pritchard singing a piece from her musical Songbird from her home studio in Tennessee, and Songbird is scheduled to play at the Huntington next spring.
You know, not only do I love uh, seeing people in their houses where you would never and get to check out their houses behind them, even though that sound is raw and obviously is not what you'd hear in a studio or on a stage, I love that. It is so real and so I just love that kind of thing. All these performers doing it from their basements, their kitchens, their whatever. It's just it's great. I know it would be good to hold them because I realize that when people call me now, I feel like my grandparents or something. I keep them on the line for forever just because it's somebody to talk to. So I, know. I, I realize I'd, I know. I'd probably be depriving other people of their performances by talking to the accountant for three hours. I know. Our phone conversations have really lengthened, I've noticed, during this whole coronavirus So, Jared, you mentioned, you mentioned uh, Melinda Lopez a second ago in uh, this Huntington at Home thing, but there's another... Uh, thing. Tell us about what's going on with something that she's directly responsible for, Ma. Yeah, this is just a, a complete coincidence, but um, she had created this play called Mala, uh, which is a one-woman show that I was able to see. It was presented by both Arts Emerson and then later the Huntington Theatre Company, and it was really about her her memories of taking care of her mom at the end of her life. And it was spurred by the notes that Melinda Lopez took on her cell phone about that experience, you know, for good and bad. It's obviously a very difficult situation to suddenly be the child, the adult child, uh, taking care of your parents, something that you're not necessarily trained for. Well, WGBH had recorded this play, uh, unbeknownst to me, actually, and it was supposed to air in the fall, but they've just moved that air date up to tomorrow, actually, at 10 o'clock. So you'll be able to see Mala, and then it's going to be streaming for 30 days afterward, uh, beginning on Friday, uh, streaming through WGBH.org. And I, I had Melinda Lopez is on Open Studio this week, and I was talking to her about this. I just think the timing is so incredible because... This is a play, again, about her concentration and focus on her elderly mother. And this is a time at which we're looking to take care of our family members and our loved ones. And I was just thinking about how poignant that story is and how how relevant it is. And she wouldn't have even necessarily known that when she was doing the play because who knew the world was going to turn into what it's become. So I I think it's a really special time to be able to see this production. Well, let's hear a little bit of the audio from the production of Mala with Melinda Lopez. Here it is. Bad, more than bad. It means your essential self is bad. Joy is Mala! But I'm not Mala. I can deal with your essential self being bad. I can relate to that. So it's probably something I should uh, I should uh, uh, see. So, uh, you know, Jared, I think when we spoke to you last in person, I can't remember when anything has happened anymore, nor can anybody else. We're talking about all these these shows that have been planned for ages at museums. And then we talked about how a lot of these museums are actually allowing for virtual tours. Well, the MFA is doing a variation on a theme on this hugely anticipated show that was about to open. What is it and what are they doing? Yeah, so this was going to be the big uh, spring and into summer show at the Museum of Fine Arts. It's called Writing the Future, Basquiat and the Hip Hop Generation. And this was really the first show, uh, is the first show. I keep putting it in the past tense, but it will it will be on view at some point. Um, 
but this was the first show to look at Jean-Michel Basquiat, who was the graffiti artist born in 1960 and, and really hit it big in the art world when he transitioned into the museum world before a very young death. And so there's been a lot of focus on him over the years. This show pulls the curtain back a little bit more and looks at all of his collaborators, all of the people that he was on the street with, the people he was making graffiti art with, and that transition that they all made into being people of color to be suddenly accepted by the 1980s gallery world, largely run by white men, uh, and to be welcomed into that world and how it really, what, what the impact was on the art world at large. So what the MFA has done is this was to open uh, just at the beginning of April right now. There was a lot of excitement about it. Uh, so the team there, including its uh, co-curator Liz Monsell, uh, has put together uh, a compendium of things that you can see online. Artist talks, uh, you can see the wall text from the exhibition, you can see images from the exhibition. Uh, they had a virtual party the other night. Normally this would have been opened with a big splash where they were going to have a number of the original artists who were featured in the show and who are still alive come. So they, they did an Instagram late night the other night, a big party, so you can see some of that as well. So that really, to the extent that they can, uh, they've put this online. Liz Monsell told me that it's it's kind of like getting the DVD extras yeah. <laughs> back how, in the days when we watched DVDs. So you have all the bonus elements. How do you do an Instagram party online? Uh, I mean, well, what it look I like? Tell you from participating because I was probably in bed by then. <laughs> um, but I think everybody signs up on Instagram, and and uh, I think from what I've seen from other. Uh, coverage and, and whatnot, people just sign up and basically you, it, it rotates around people playing music okay. and dancing and contributing. I guess I'm too old for that now, Marjorie. Okay. It's okay. Well, listen, if you're too old, then I guess I should forget about it completely. Anyway, okay, uh, let's let's talk about this. Um, it, uh, it started as a joke. This sounds pretty fascinating. You know, we need a, just a moment of levity. We do, we do. I mean... It is it and it isn't it at the same time. Uh, it started as a joke as a documentary that's now streaming on a number of platforms, Amazon, Google Play, uh, Microsoft, Xbox. But it's about the Eugene Merman Comedy Festival, uh, which had its farewell show in 2017. And Eugene Merman, people might know him from Bob's Burgers. He's actually a Massachusetts resident, lives here. Uh, and for about 10 years, he and all of these downtown New York comics, all of these people that you know now, and this is why I love this, because you really get to see how this whole artistic group came together, but people like Mike Birbiglia, Jim Gaffigan, Janine Garofalo, uh, Kumail Nanjiani, they all came together uh, to celebrate this festival, which was really started as a joke, to, as a way to kind of make fun of other festivals. So you get this, this great sense of community among the comedians. It's hilarious. You get a sense of their process, but it's also balanced with, and this is the not-so-fun part, um, the really sad part of Eugene Merman's wife being diagnosed with terminal cancer, and how he balances that. And they have a young son, and so really how he balances this professional comedy life. His wife also really loved comedy uh, and with what they were dealing with very personally and, and how the two actually did intersect as he tried to use his life and some of his material. And, and so you see that really delicate but well-constructed juxtaposition. Do we have sound from that? We do, don't we? Yes, we do. Here's a clip. You didn't play this yet, did you? No. no. Here's a clip from it started as uh, a joke, which Jared's been describing. 
You know who doesn't say mozzarella? People from Italy. I know it started as a joke, but it's a pretty good joke. It's got a lot of heart behind the joke. I do think that comedy has the power to do more than just make people laugh. What I'm working on now is a bit about cancer. Eugene has never really talked about his personal life in his comedy, ever. Terminal illness, more like bus terminal. Sorry that doesn't make any sense. I'm just at a complete loss and very, very sad. <laughs> okay, a little too sad. That one's a little too sad. Put it, put it earlier in the thing where it's like, yeah, we're having fun. No, it's nothing like a comedy about terminal cancer to lift your spirits no, in these times. Like a comedy it's about really... coronavirus. There's not a lot to laugh about at this particular juncture. So, uh, Jared Bowen, are, do you have a show this Friday? Of course we have a show. And what is on it besides <laughs> you? See, this is me trying to extend the conversation as long as possible. <laughs> so I have to go back to just what is it? House. What is it? We will take you through uh, Huntington at Home, which we talked about with Melinda Lopez. And also, uh, I, I'm sure a lot of people have seen and heard uh, the, the performances by Yo-Yo Ma and others who are with Silk Road. And oh, so we so talked great. with Yo-Yo Ma's co-artistic director, Nicholas Cords, about what they're doing in home sessions and, and bringing this classical music out in, in little spurts via Twitter and Facebook. It's, it's, and he performs for us, too. It's, it's very lovely. Can I say one thing? The Songs of Comfort, I don't know if you call it a campaign or whatever he is doing. We've been doing at the end of Greater Boston every night, like a minute or two of connections between human beings. It may be notes in a driveway. It may be visiting and leaving some food for a senior citizen. What we've got is a number of amateurs who are playing beautiful pieces, kids, adults, older adults, as part of the Songs of Comfort thing. So once again, like he's done throughout his life, Yo-Yo Ma has yeah. inspired incredible stuff in the middle of this horrible time. So I can't wait to see that. Jared, thanks, and good luck, and we miss you. We'll see you soon. All right, great to be with you. Thanks, Jared. I'll call you tonight and just leave the phone off the hook and so you can, <laughs> you know what I mean? I'll do what I got to do and... Take care, Jared. I'll be waiting. <laughs> WGBH Executive Arts Editor Jared Bowen joins us every week. He's the host of the TV series Open Studio, which you can catch Friday nights right here on WGBH at 8.30. Up next, we open the lines and ask you about Bernie Sanders. He has dropped out of the presidential race. Joe Biden is the nominee, I guess, of the Democratic Party for president. Bernie fans call in. Biden fans call in. What do you think about the departure of Bernie Sanders? That is next. We're going to be corona-free to the top of the hour. Maybe we won't. But anyway, we're going to talk about Bernie. 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Mardrigan. As you learned, we all learned about noon today that Bernie Sanders has dropped out of the presidential race, has suspended his campaign. He will continue to be on the ballot when and if there are further primary votes, continue to collect delegates and, and attempt to influence the direction of the party. Here's a pretty critical couple of seconds of what he had to say today, this in regard to Joe Biden. Today, I congratulate Joe Biden, a very decent man, who I will work with to move our progressive ideas forward. So we're going to take your calls for the rest of the show. For those of you who were Sanders fan, is Biden enough for you? Do you subscribe to the, the Sanders notion that he's a very decent man 
who your candidate, your former candidate, will work with to move your progressive ideas forward. Are you disappointed? Do you think he should have stayed into the bitter end, which is exactly what he did a bunch of years ago? But some people think staying in is what uh, one of the things that damaged the candidacy of uh, Hillary Clinton. So we want to know what your take is, whether you're a Sanders fan or not, on the fact that uh, earlier today he ended his uh, second and, I'm sure, final presidential uh, campaign. You know, it, it's very interesting because Bernie Sanders talked about Medicare for all, which people looked at as – many people looked at as being a, a step too far. We can't possibly do this. And one of the things that coronavirus, of course, has yeah. revealed is the uh, tragedy, not just for the people that have no insurance, but for the people called in, to the hospital to care for people in a disaster like this and for the people who are now infected because of the and, – and, and may die because of the tragic uh, – tragedy of not having access to, to quality health care. I mean they've talked a lot about the, the – uh, uh, Latinos and African Americans suffering more than uh, white people. Well, it's mostly about poor African Americans and poor uh, Latinos right. who don't have access to health care. So, you know, you, you really wonder: do we do we think now that that health, having health insurance for everybody is not a good idea? I don't know, uh, but but apparently that was a step too far as far as he was concerned and as far as Liz Warren was concerned. And the money, what were they talking about in terms of money for that? It's going to be a lot of money, uh, but you do say. Was it short-sighted to think that it's too much money to have health care for people? Well, we're spending I, now? it's not just Medicare for all. I think even uh, the staunchest uh, Sanders critics would say this guy totally changed the debate, not only in his own party, in America. And as you said repeatedly, what used to be the radical left of the Democratic Party in terms of ideas is now often the mainstream in terms of ideas on a whole host of things. And I think Sanders deserves credit for that. So we don't have a hell of a lot of time. We want to give an opportunity for people on all sides of this issue to weigh in. Let's start in Wisconsin, which incredibly had a primary yesterday, which is, in my view, unconscionable. But in any case, Gary from Wisconsin, uh, you're here. Hi. Welcome. Yeah, hi. I just wanted to say we moved from Randolph, Mass. about a year and a half ago, and my wife just reconnected me with your show about two weeks ago oh, by a mass on the phone. So and glad. I'm just so thrilled to hear you guys. I missed you so much. Thank well, thanks. You. Did you vote what, yesterday? Yeah. What was it like voting yesterday, we Gary? Voted, we voted, and our vote was easy because we go two miles down the road, and there's a total of 160 people on their roster. So it was mm. we didn't have to wait in those huge lines like they did in Milwaukee. Okay. And, uh, and Green Bay. So what do you think? Were you but a Sanders I voter? For, I voted for Bernie, and his timing stinks. <laughs> Just voted for him yesterday. You know, but, um, what do you think of the withdrawal, Gary? I, I kind of expected it. I was going to vote for him anyway, but I'm, I'm all for, I'm all for uh, Joe Biden now. So, you know, Gary, I, was... I like a lot of... I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I was just thinking, we talked yesterday about the airline bailout, and we talked with Christopher Muther about this and how the airlines have put, wouldn't need this dramatic bailout if they had not put their money into buying back shares and they'd done different kinds of things with their money. So now we're about to bail them out again. That's the kind of stuff that Bernie Sanders was talking about, the, you know, the, the fraud committed against taxpayers you know, back in 2007 and eight, and now we're doing it again. And you, I don't know, do you think Biden is going to take up these, these issues or what? I think he will, and that's one of the reasons I voted for him. I didn't think he was going to make it, but I vote. My wife and I voted anyway, and I think uh, hopefully just having the votes, you know, the tally of the votes is going to help his cause. 
Hey, Gary, before you go away, is it fair to say, uh, obviously I'm a thousand plus miles away, it seems from reading about the politics in Wisconsin is the only place that may be more sickly partisan than Washington, D.C., is Wisconsin. Is that a fair charge? I, I think that's possible. Like I said, we're up here in the middle of nowhere, so I'm not like in the in the thick of it in the cities. But um, yeah, but it, I, I think it's still a purple state. Uh, you know, you, you see the signs going down the street. There's not they're not all Republicans up here, and uh, you know, I just hope it all works out in our favor. That's well, we miss you in Massachusetts, and we're really glad you reconnected. Stay in touch with us and yep. say hi to your family, Very Gary. Quickly, uh, yeah. Very quickly, once in a while you get a call from my brother Kevin from Randolph. Oh, there. oh my good Gary, yep. I'm just curious. Why yep. did you move from Randolph to the middle of nowhere in Wisconsin? <laughs> because we lived in, we moved up from Florida after 32 years and moved in with my mother in Randolph, and she passed away suddenly about uh, in 2017. So we had to sell the house, and my wife's mother lives up here. So oh, okay. Okay. Well, don't be a stranger. And Stay in touch, Gary. We're thrilled to talk to you, and we'll look forward to talking to your brother. What's that? Try to find the song uh, Splendid Isolation by Juan Zevon. I think you'll like it. Warren Zevon <laughs> okay. is one of the greatest ever, by the way. We will find it. Gary, thank you so much uh, for the call. Good to talk to you. Frank in Newport, hi. Hey, how are you? It's a very good day. Good. Why? Because I'm glad that Bernie got out, and I'm a Biden guy, and I think he got out with grace. And I think he did. That, uh, it, it didn't get overly ugly, and I think that, uh, you know, now we need every all the Bernie people will find out if those Bernie bros or whether they're going to really, um, you know, call us behind Joe Biden and the woman that he picks. I mean, well, how cool is that going to be? Well, you know, 15, and he just promised, that's a very good point. I forgot about that. Uh, Biden promised that that final debate that he would pick a woman. You know, the troubling sign, now admittedly, this is when it was much more contentious than it obviously is today. A couple of weeks ago, I'm sure you saw the poll, Frank, where 15% of people who said they were Sanders supporters said they would vote for Trump rather than Joe Biden if Biden were the nominee. Uh, I find that a little hard to believe, but... We'll see what we learn in the days ahead. Frank, thanks for I your think, call. I'm sorry. Yep. I think Trump's going to get killed. Well, uh, we'll see. It's a pretty tight race, at least as far as I've seen, but we shall see. Frank, thanks for the call. In the New York Times piece talking about the um, Sanders announcement, which we can all see ourselves, but I haven't seen, have a chance yet, they called him eloquent, but without his characteristic spark, he was by turns gracious and resolute, and obviously... Uh, one of the reasons he's still there, as you said at the beginning, is so as he can influence influence the platform at the convention, assuming there is a convention. Why not? You know, the platform, uh, with all due respect to people who care about such things, is made to be dishonored. I mean, how many people uh, who end up being elected to office take a position that they wouldn't otherwise take because they say their party platform that was adopted by the members of their party is what's going to guide them? I think the issue is, since he did leave graciously and didn't stay to the convention— does Biden feel a greater obligation and endorse Biden in a big time way here, as he said he would? Does Biden feel a greater obligation to move further in his direction in terms of what he says in his campaign? And I assume that's what Sanders supporters are looking for and waiting for. Sue in Connecticut, thank you for calling. Hi, Sue. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I am a registrar of voters here in uh, Northeast Connecticut and Pomfret. Yep. And um, we have. Our election, our primary, coming up June 2nd. 
And I am furious that Bernie would withdraw and then leave his name on the ballot because at the, at, in mid-May, that's when our surge is going to happen here in rural Northeast Connecticut. And he is putting the voters of Connecticut at risk. He is putting our poll workers at risk. I have written to his campaign. I want everyone to write to his campaign. If he is a man of the ethics and integrity that he says he is, he needs to get his name off the ballot. April 27th is the last day in Connecticut that he can do this. Um, so, Sue, can I? You have to turn the radio down. I know it's distracting. Uh, when, oh, sorry. That's okay. It's sorry. okay. Uh, l- let me just say, uh, I understand this. Well, you know the rules. He has another couple of weeks to get his name off. Uh, I am surely not speaking for even one Sanders voter, but I would assume there's not going to be the same sort of turnout in uh, uh, primary campaigns, elections. I don't think there are any caucuses left. Primary votes, uh, as we go down the line in the next few months, when the second candidate has essentially ended his campaign. Wouldn't wouldn't you think, Sue? Right, but that doesn't really matter. Um, We still have to disinfect everything. Oh, because you got to set up the – oh, that's a good point. That is a a good point. That is a good point. Our our poll workers are elderly, and, you know, we may be doing absentee – a lot more absentee voting, but that means we have to handle – all of the mail that everybody has sent in and you know how everybody's separating LR mail out. So it's just, it's not good. No, that's um, a, that's a, you know, by the way, it's a very, very good point that I hadn't thought about and we'll bring it up with appropriate people in the days and weeks ahead. Sue, thanks for sharing your perspective with us. We appreciate it. There's an email from Art from West Bridgewater. A sad day that Jones will choose a tired old Paul or someone who has been consistently pushing his agenda forever. Time will tell whether Biden supporters will turn out Oh, Bernie supporters will turn out for Biden, especially with the VP issue. Uh, not None of the women who ran were even close with the Democratic base, never mind with the general electorate. You know who I think is moving up the list? I have no I know. insiders. That good-looking woman from Michigan. So, you, know, you are so superficial. <laughs> it is painful. Well, I know, but I mean – we now that know pretty much you have to have a good looking for, look at the candidates. This is the governor the of, of Michigan can't have whose a name totally unattractive candidate, can Donald you? Trump couldn't remember her name the other day, but beyond the fact that she has been willing to take on Was Donald Gretchen Whitmer or something? Trump, she is uh, a, an up and comer. Obviously, she's governor. She's an up and comer in her own party. And I would say, and she's obviously from a pretty important state come the final. So I yeah. would say she's got a pretty good shot. Gretchen Whitmer. And by the way, she gave, didn't she give the alternative to the Republican did State she? of the Union? I believe she did. Hmm. Nancy from Merrimack. Maybe you're right. Yeah, thank you for right. calling. Hi, Nancy. Yeah, hi guys. I just wanted to say to all, you know, I've, it's sad to see Bernie go. I've, you know, I've watched him in politics from the last century. It sounds funny to say that, but watched him, in the, you know, since the last century. I understand what he's doing, and he's very right to pull everything to the left. But I think what's really important for everybody to understand is that this is an election about the Supreme Court. And if we all understand that, you know, you've seen the the ballot suppression that happened in the Supreme Court. It was right along uh, party lines. And a vote for Blue, no matter who, is a vote for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She is holding in there for us. So that, you know, I I have a lot of feelings about one way or the other. I think the Democratic platform has been pulled to the left. You have the people making the legislation that are still there, the Pitbulls, Bernie and Elizabeth, and you have Joe signing it. And I think that that's fabulous and will move us so far to the right that we can bring new people in. Nancy, thanks. There you go. Hell of a call. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. 877 
301-879-3037. You know, it's got to be a sad day, too. And I guess the sad day was when he realized it was coming apart. He was the nominee. I mean, it's sort of like, who were we discussing in this with yesterday? Was it Chuck Todd? I'm not, I don't know what couldn't have been yesterday. John King, whoever it was. Well, he was the nominee right after Elizabeth Warren was the nominee. Exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. At the end of the summer and in September, Warren was in front. And many people thought the nominee. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden Sanders took a lead. And through Nevada, he was clearly the guy and then all of a sudden South Carolina happened. I mean, the story of this campaign, which is sort of the story of a lot of campaigns, is African-American voters determine the outcome here. Bernie Sanders could never get a critical mass of black voters. They all overwhelmingly coalesced around the candidacy of Joe Biden. And as we discussed in 2018, a lot of the key outcomes, starting with Doug Jones in Alabama and beyond, were determined by huge out, uh, uh, turnout. From black voters in Democratic primaries, particularly African-American women, now the question is, will Democrats repay their loyalty? Max from Rhode Island, thank you for calling. Hi, Max. Yeah, hi. Uh, this is the uh, coming up on the anniversary of my first call to you guys. It's oh, good. Remember, it was like it was uh, yesterday, I, Max. Go ahead. I know it. I know it. But I have a couple of comments. First Quick. of all, before I get to my point, you guys did a terrific job on that debate um, with the Massachusetts people. Oh, Kennedy. Joe Kennedy and Ed Markey. Thank you very much. One at yeah. some but point. we're almost out of time, Max, so get Thank going. You, okay, well, listen, I'm online with, uh, uh, with uh, Bernie getting out. We needed to stabilize the situation. Bernie, uh, I was behind him for a long period of time, um, but we need somebody who's going to be calm at the wheel and take things as they go. There'll be another time, perhaps the next time through, where we can move a candidate uh, who's more left. I do think Biden will accommodate Bernie, uh, at least uh, his positions to some extent. And uh, the, the most important thing to me is we get the present guy out of there. And I think Biden is the man to do it. Max, thanks right, for thank your you anniversary for call. call. We appreciate it. You know, it. just like I used to get really nervous about George W. Bush coming to the podium, you know, I was always afraid, mm-hmm. get through this, get through this after 9-11 because mm-hmm. he had a little deer in the headlights. Look about he him. Did. Same thing with Joe Biden. I saw him last night on Chris Cuomo's show. I'm thinking, get through this, Joe. Get through this. Get through this. You know, without any big faux pas. And he did. I was very uh, happy for him. It's a hell of a standard, Marjorie. Well, I tell you, I'm trying to be truthful here, Jim. Okay. He makes me nervous. But um, anyway, he is an apparent nominee. Thanks a lot for listening to another edition of Boston Public Radio. Tune in tomorrow for Andrew Cabral, House Wayne's and Means Chair Richard Neal is going to tell us a lot about what's going on with the stimulus bill. And the always, always irrepressible Alex Beam. We want to thank our crew, Chelsea Murs, Arjun Singh, Zoe Matthews, Hannah Jubilee, and Aidan Conley. Plus our engineer, John LaCroix Parker, who found my wallet yesterday, for which I'm very grateful. Jim Brady, what's on TV? We actually have a pretty impressive show. You know, with this dreaded surge on the horizon, uh, there have been discussions and guidelines put out in Massachusetts about medical personnel distributing limited resources. Dr. Robert Prug, who is the director of Harvard Medical School Center for Bioethics, was in the center of drafting those guidelines. He'll be with me. Erin Sakin is a longtime nursing assistant at the Holyoke Soldiers Home, where at least 25 veterans have died from well, some of them, at least, from COVID-19. She herself recovering from the virus. She's been complaining about inadequate protections there for a long time. And finally, another guy who just recovered from COVID-19, legendary folk singer Tom Rush. Not oh, only talking about his recovery, but about uh, the loss of the great, great John Prine. And Tom's going to sing a little bit for us, too. So that's tonight, 7 o'clock, Greater Boston. Fantastic. 
I'm Marjorie Egan. I'm Jim Bradley. Thanks again for tuning in. Please tune in again tomorrow and have a wonderful and safe afternoon.